Okay, members, you're very welcome to this afternoon's Executive Office Committee. Uh, we'll make a start on the agenda. Item one is apologies. I don't think uh, Clark, we have any, uh, Michael, any apologies. Okay, and um, then we move on to item two, just the Chairman's business. Um, maybe just a few remarks. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that we have uh, DUP nominations in Paul Given and Gary Middleton. Uh, they have been announced as the DUP's nominees for First and Deputy First Minister. So there is certainly much work uh, for them to do if the appointment process runs. Uh, Chair, Chair um, we haven't won the next election that decisively. It's First Minister and Junior Minister. Junior Minister, of course. That's that would have been a, a very interesting uh, perspective if we had both first and depth. That would be a bit of a clue there, Christopher. <laughs> well, okay, then we'll go back to, to welcoming their nomination as First Minister and Junior uh, Minister in the department. So, look, there certainly is much work for them to do if the appointment process runs smoothly for them. Um, we do have our excessive waiting lists in hospital. We've got the recovery process from COVID and also the uh, Brexit debacle that needs to be dealt with. So the inbox for them is certainly not going to be light. And if they are appointed uh, next week, we will certainly take the opportunity to invite them to the committee uh, along with others at their earliest opportunity. Uh, also, I want to maybe just to highlight as well that we are the committee that scrutinizes the work of the COVID task force. And it was acknowledged this past week that there will be no prosecutions as a result of the Black Lives Matter protests, and that is right and proper. But we have to ensure that the connections between regulations and enforcement is crystal clear. There can be no ambiguity about this. And uh, I know that members will have received correspondence, as we have from CAJ, about the ongoing concerns that they have at the moment about the existing rules regarding people's right to protest and that the department must ensure that these guidelines are clear for people. So uh, hopefully that clarity which is being sought will be made available. And also just that in the past week we have noted that Portugal has been removed from the UK green list for travel. Now this caused a major inconvenience for local people who in Portugal who had to secure tests before attempting to get back home before uh, Tuesday morning at four o'clock. Uh, it has dealt another very serious blow to our travel industry who have come through the pandemic battered and bruised like other industries, but they have received little or no help uh, so far. And the pledge of a rescue package, which was announced by the first and deputy first minister some time ago has not materialized as yet for them. Now, travel agents are being left in the very difficult position of being allowed to open and thus are not able to access any grants, but they effectively have nothing to sell because of the restrictions that are there. So I would urge um, the department to address those issues that there are within the travel uh, industry to try and help them because they are a sector uh, that have grave difficulty uh, over the pandemic, but are looking at a very difficult summer ahead of them as well. Um, moving on then to item three, which is the draft minutes. The draft minutes of the proceedings from the 2nd of June are on page six of the meeting pack. Are members content that they are a true reflection of proceedings? Yep. 
Yep. Okay. So we will get those signed and uh, that will be them sorted. In terms of matters arising on page four, or item four on the agenda, um, the departmental briefing on urban villages and communities in transition, which officials agreed to provide us with last week, is available at page 15 of the meeting pack. So is there any other matters arising that anybody wants to raise? Okay, that's grand. Then we can move on then to our first item today, main item, which is item five, the departmental spending plans, which is the June monitoring. We are able to have officials uh, up into the spotlight. We have with us today, Chris Stewart from the executive office and Chris is going to be joined by uh, Nelia Lloyd, who's the assistant secretary of Strategy, Policy and Equality and Good Relations, and Ms. Tara Kennedy, who is an accountant within the same department. So hopefully we'll have the three of yourselves on now in the spotlight. And Chris, we can pass over to yourself then if you want to give us the presentation on the June monitoring, and we can take some questions after that. Thank you, Chair, and good afternoon, members. And could we thank the committee for the further opportunity to brief you on our approach to the June monitoring round? Uh, members will have received the, the briefing paper uh, on that approach, and I'd like to pick out just one or two highlights on that, uh, perhaps to pave the way for, for questions. June monitoring round is significant, even though it comes earlier in the year. It provides us an opportunity to review our spending plans and assess our budgetary requirements for uh, the remainder of the year. We continue to manage very closely our non-ring-fenced budgets, uh, and that's going successfully at present. So we haven't considered it necessary to make a bid to DOF in this monitoring round. But of course, we'll continue to keep uh, those budgets uh, under review. There's more action in relation to the ring-fenced budgets. And in terms of those, uh, members will be aware that we had an opening budget of some £46.2 million for historical institutional abuse. Uh, for 21-22. Revised estimates, however, in the intervening period between the information gathering last autumn and now indicate that there's a reduced requirement of some £8.7 million, pounds, and that's been declared uh, as a ring-fenced easement uh, to DOF as required by the guidance. We can't simply uh, reuse it ourselves. It has to be uh, declared as an easement. But we do hope to get it back again, uh, and I'll say a, a little bit more about that in a moment or two. Very important to think to emphasize to the committee that this uh, change in budgetary requirements simply reflects clearer assumptions, better information than we had at the beginning of the year. And that's based on the fact that we have a longer period of operation of the scheme uh, than, than we had when the initial estimates uh, were made and the initial budget exercise was undertaken. And again, I would want to emphasize to, to members, this will not impact on payments to victims on, and survivors, nor will it impact on the budgets for COSICA or for survivors' services. Uh, those are all adequately covered. It also doesn't reflect uh, any underperformance in, in delivery or in the provision of help uh, for victims. It merely reflects what I might describe as an abundance of caution earlier. Uh, when the budget estimates were, were made, uh, we're, we now have better information. We've refined those, and that's made it possible for us to declare the easement. So uh, we have, as I said, um, made a, a request to Department of Finance for consideration to be given to reassigning uh, that money back uh, for uh, TEO purposes. 
Uh, so that would be in two components. Uh, firstly, three million pounds for the Communities in Transition uh, programme. You may recall from earlier briefing that whilst we were very glad to get the 10 million pounds over three years from, from NDNA, that is nevertheless a, a little less than we had hoped for. Uh, so we would hope if the OF agrees that we can apply that additional three million pounds uh, to that very successful um, project. Uh, and that will allow the ambition of the project to be further realised. We've also made a request uh, to DOF to reassign the remaining £5.7 million pounds, uh, of the easement to the Victims Payment Scheme for Permanent Disablement. Uh, and we have made a bid alongside that request for reassignment of £13.3 million. Pounds. Adding those two together, uh, that adds up to £19 million pounds of a total request in the June monitoring round, uh, which aligns uh, with our earlier estimates of what is required uh, this year. Members will be aware that ministers are still pursuing uh, the UK government uh, for funding um, for, for that scheme. But while that's ongoing, we thought it was nevertheless prudent uh, to make our own contribution to what we think is required this year, whilst we're in a position to do that uh, because of that easement, hence the request uh, to DOF. The committee will be aware that the Government Actuaries Department report, um, which drives a lot of this, was based on a range uh, of potential application figures uh, that we supplied to GAD for, for modelling. Uh, and within that, the central estimate, uh, uh, that is the one in the middle uh, between the lowest estimate and the highest estimate, uh, is in the region of £19 million. Hence, uh, that's what uh, we have bid for. However, we continue to recognise that there are a great many uncertainties uh, around this. The cost estimates are extremely difficult uh, to predict. Uh, until the scheme actually opens. So this figure could change and it might be necessary for uh, us to bid again uh, later in the year. Uh, and of course we will do so uh, if that's necessary. Uh, those are the main highlights from the, the revenue side. In terms of our capital budget, the committee will be aware that we had a slight overcommitment against our opening budget and therefore we've made a capital bid uh, of £0.8 million pounds to the OF uh, in this monitoring round. Chair, that's a, a very brief skip uh, over just a couple of highlights of the paper. We'd be happy to add light and shade on that uh, or expand in response to members' questions. All right, Chris, thank you very much indeed for that. That's appreciated. Um, I'll maybe kick off with just a few questions. Um, you um, had in April, there was the suggestion of needing about 2.3 million for COVID recovery, but you bid for 1.3 in this round. So just checking, is that a reassessment or do you expect to be asking for the additional million later in the year or what, what's caused the reevaluation just of that, of that figure? Chair, I'll just look to my colleagues here for, for confirmation, but my understanding is it's a, it's a re-evaluation. I think of all the areas of expenditure, that was one that was most difficult uh, to, to predict. Uh, and really, un, un, until activities are underway, it's very, very difficult uh, to get accurate figures for how much they'll cost. Oh. Yeah, Chris, just to add to that, that's exactly the position we were able to reassess um, a number of weeks ago and took that opportunity to do so. And on foot of that, we were able to uh, reduce the requirement very slightly, as, as you've pointed out there, Chair. So at that point in time, that was our assessed requirement going into 21-22 of the, the, the money that we didn't have in our opening budget. And what, what was the overall budget that that was £2.3 extra for? 
So we had um, through previous information gathering requests um, at the start of the budget process for 21-22, we had um, estimated what our requirements were likely to be looking at COVID-19 activity across the various work streams. Um, and that had um, pointed to a shortfall of, of that 2.3 million point figure. Um, and then a number of weeks ago, we were able to reassess that on a bit of a fresh request. And we took on board um, what the spending profile was looking like across those COVID-19 activity areas in 21-22. We were able, therefore, to reduce the overall okay. additionality that we, we felt we needed for the current year. But what was the, what, what was the figure to which the two point three was considered additional to? I mean, was it a ten million pound budget and then you needed two point three more, or a twenty million and needed two point three more, or we had got two point one million in our opening budget for twenty one twenty two, um, which was short of what we had originally envisaged we would need for the for the the, the financial year. So it was against the two point one million. So it was two point one million. Then you needed two point three more, but then downgraded that to needing one point three. Right? Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, right. Then, because uh, I would say it would have been maybe nice to have kept that figure, because certainly I know maybe on a separate uh, stream, the messaging that that there is continues to be a difficult issue, and I know that messaging is the responsibility of of the executive office, and I still continue to hear regularly people that don't understand what the regulations are, and they're concerned about what they can and can't do, and when the changes come in, and the ease of being able to access information about the regulations, um, and maybe actually just having kept that extra million and pumped it into the messaging campaign might have been very useful for people uh, to help them. But I know that that messaging element will probably be something that we can look at again rather than now as, as part of the, the figures. Um, just maybe, Chris, you had mentioned there about the communities in transition. I think you'd said that you got, you'd asked for 12 million, but you got 10 and then you got an extra three, which is, is that an increase of one for the program overall? Or is that um, just for this round that you're asking, bringing you up to 13 million? And do you envisage needing more for that come the September and January rounds? Uh, it would be for, for this year, Chair. Again, close keep, keep me right on the detail, but the £8.7 million of, of easement uh, is, is a one-off. I don't think we can rely on that on, on future years going, going forward. The £10 million we're very grateful for. It's a very significant sum of money, and it's over three years. And there are very few other projects that are getting a three-year uh, offer uh, at, at this point in time. Nevertheless, as you say, we have actually bid for, I think, I think £12 million um, initially. And we're very confident that that project can spend uh, that sort of order of magnitude of money and, and spend it very effectively. Um, and it, it was the view of, of ministers that we should look for additional contributions uh, to that project going forward. So the opportunity to invest a, a further three million pounds in it is, is very welcome. I'm not certain it would be, be making further bids during this financial year and subsequent monitoring rounds. I think that would take us beyond what we could spend uh, this year, but we're confident that if we do get the three million pounds, we can spend it. Okay, okay. And then just finally then, um, there was uh, one million for delivering social change um, which is being withheld now. So what was that initially being envisaged for that it's now not required? Chair, if you don't mind, I'll give Neela the hospital pass on that one just for the detail. 
secondly. Um, so the one million pound was being held centrally, and we had um, logged that as an expected requirement as part of the budget setting process for 21-22, and it was being held centrally to permit the executive some time to consider a further tranche of a DSC programme. Um, so at this stage, we haven't um, been provided with that budget coverage for 21-22, and some further work will need to be undertaken um, along with DOF colleagues um, um, to, to make a, a further case for that money during the subsequent part of 21-22. But it is for a, a new, potentially for a new programme of work under the Delivering Social Change umbrella. Um, the previous programmes have, have, have finished in that regard um, of recent financial years. So that's what it is um, earmarked for, subject to approval. So it's it was it was in your original budget to be spent on delivering social change, but now you're saying it's not going to be required to be spent for that. So what what was it envisaged that it was going to be spent on? I think we put it put it forward as part of our budget request for twenty one twenty two as part of our information gathering exercise last autumn, and it it was logged as a potential requirement in twenty one twenty two for a new delivering social change program which would need to have been developed, and further work was required to do that and to determine what exactly that would be used for. So it's it's not like we haven't now we're not that we're not um consciously requiring the funding, we do need to do further work to um, secure that funding and make, put a case forward to secure that funding in 21-22. So that's the position that we're at just at the moment. In, in other words, it was being sought to deliver a programme under delivering social change, but that programme hadn't been decided. Now you're not going to be delivering that, so the money can be surrendered back in. How much of the overall delivering social change budget for the department is one million? Just to clarify that point there, just we're not saying we're surrendering it back in. We're still saying that we will have to do some further work to predict in terms of what that programme and what that money will be required to do. So just to be clear, we're not saying we're going to surrender that money. Um, Tara, can you um, advise in respect of, of that um, question there around vis-a-vis -vis the totality of the budget? So delivering delivering social change, yes, we have one million um, capital at the moment, um, which Neil is referring to, and then we have budget for SIF. And that's broken down into revenue and capital at the moment for 21-22. And as you know, that's coming to an end, Sif. Okay, so is it the one million capital that's not being used, or is it one million of the revenue and, and, and capital that's not been being used? Go Sorry, Barney, um, if I just clarify if that's okay, and then Tara, you can, of course, um, um, come in just to, to augment. The £1 million I was referring to was um, in, in the resource space um, in terms of the delivering social change, and it was a future programme that um, might need to be taken forward and, and options, etc., to be developed. That was the £1 million that I was referring to under the delivering social change um, umbrella. 
Chair, if, if I could just add a little bit to, to that. There's, there's a number of programs and projects in this space that are at or are coming close to sort of end point in, in, in their current phase. And we do need to look across the, the piece in this to see where they might go, how they might evolve for, for a future round. Learning, I think, the lessons from you know where we have enjoyed success, particularly around things like urban villages and CIT, where the area-based approach of, of these programs and projects with the roots absolutely in the communities, very strong elements of co-design, co-delivery in them, which have been very successful. So we want to look at things like delivering social change and what might come after SIF at the second phase of, of CIT, and also look with our colleagues in, in other departments, like particularly education and communities, at that whole range of area-based projects to see if we can go further in terms of joining them up, uh, joining them together, and aligning them maybe even more so than they are now with program for government outcomes uh, when, when those are agreed. Okay, and certainly not in my intention to, to trip anybody up over that, but maybe Chris, could you drop us a little note on the delivering social change, what, what its overall budget was for the year, what, what this million is, and what will still just a, even a one pager just to give us a descriptor of that. Certainly, Chair, we'd put the, we'll, we'll give you the detail of that. I understand. That's fine. Thank you for that. Thank you, Neilia. Thank you, Tara. I'm going to bring in uh, John Stewart next as the Deputy Chair of the Committee for his questions. John, over, over to yourself. Thanks, Chair. I appreciate it. Um, thanks, folks, for your um, presentation and questions so far. Um, just a couple of points from me. The Chair touched on the $2.3 million in terms of COVID recovery. And um, he actually referred to in his opening remarks about the need for ongoing support for travel agents and independent travel consultants. I'm just wondering, does that, is there anything within that funding directed towards that sector, given the pressures that they're undoubtedly going to be under for some time? Um, apologies that's been covered before, but I'm sort of new to the committee. I'm just trying to find the feet and see exactly where it's been directed. That's my initial one. No, uh, thank you, John. It's, it's a very important question. Uh, we absolutely recognise, I think, the unique difficulties that that sector uh, continues to, to experience in terms of the loss of business that they've had so far uh, and the difficulties for them in responding to you know, the Chair's absolutely correct description of the moving target that they're trying to hit in terms of getting their, their businesses open again. You'll be aware that the executive decided some time ago that TEO should deliver uh, a scheme of support uh, for travel agents, and we're engaged in that. Members will be aware, because I'm sure your post bags are, are full, uh, as ours are, with, with concerns from uh, that sector that, that they haven't received the payment yet. And we absolutely understand and sympathise with, with that concern. I would want to assure the committee that the, the team responsible is, is working incredibly hard uh, to get that delivered. Uh, it is a very significant challenge for us. This is something which TEO doesn't normally do. Uh, we don't have a policy role in, in this space, but we're the chosen delivery agent, if you like, for, for this scheme. Unfortunately, what that meant was it's a small team that had to set aside their, their day job for the time being and develop uh, systems and, and approaches for doing this from scratch. I mean, we could take, and we have done, some learning from other departments that, that, that have delivered schemes. But we don't actually have a grant scheme in place, so we've had to invent one uh, as we're going along. The net result of that is it's taking longer than we are comfortable with, and it's taking longer, obviously, than, than the sector is, is comfortable with. There's a lot to do. It's not just a question of someone writing in, uh, and then we can issue a check. Great deal to be done in terms of verification. Uh, of, of uh, the entitlement uh, to the particular payment. And that, as I say, is, is taking a long time when you have to invent the systems as, as you're going along. 
what we're saying to inquirers at the moment is that we aim to have the payments out by, by early summer. That's a bit vague and we absolutely un understand that. Uh, I'm reluctant to try and put any more precise date on it now um, because we're just not in a position to do so. Too many uncertainties. But it is a priority for us that the team is working hard and we will do our level best to get those payments out uh, to those who are affected as quickly as possible. Okay, thanks for that, Chris. But I, I, sort of, I, I know where we are, where we are, which is a hateful saying, but in the benefit of hindsight, and maybe if we ever unfortunately face this situation again, I think it would be right and proper that we kept grants and support grants to one department who could dedicate their time and expertise to that. And I don't know ultimately how it ended up with yourselves. Um, and <laughs> it's just the way it is. And you probably never saw it. In fact, I know you didn't, but. Um, we, we, we certainly we certainly didn't see it, and, and I could offer a comment on that, but I'm conscious that my ministers made a decision, and once ministers make a decision, that's my policy too. No problem at all. Um, we're hearing later on um, about an update on the High Street Task Force, and undoubtedly with the pressures high, our town centres and city centres have faced over many years, but particularly in the back of the impact of the pandemic, they're under massive pressure. Is there funding within that even for preliminary works to get that task force up and running and to start delivering on the ground? Or is it really just um, preparatory, exploratory works just to see you know, what a strategy would look like? No, there's no no budget per se for the High Street's task force. Um, ministers took a decision when that was being established that it would work through existing agencies and departments and, and existing budgets. So it won't have a budget of its own to spend. It's more about bringing its influence to bear uh, on, on better better using uh, existing budgets. That's very much how the Welsh High Street's task force works. It has some budget uh, of its own that works primarily through, through councils and existing departments. It, Given the strategic nature of that work, and I'm sure we'll say more about it next week, but given the strategic nature of that work, um, looking forward, it may be appropriate at some point in the future if ministers decide to do so to actually give it its own budget, if we can secure it um, to allow some more direct intervention as well. But for now, no, there isn't a budget for it. Okay, that's helpful to know. Um, just moving on, there was an £8.7 million overestimate in the HIA payments out of the original £46.2 million pounds budgeted for it. Are you content now with the estimates going forward for the cost of that? And just wonder what the original calculation would be based on? This is another one of these areas where it, it's very difficult to accurately assess the costs of a scheme on, until it's up and running, or in the case of this one, until it's been going for, for some time. So uh, colleagues of it will keep me right on the detail of it, but if I recall correctly, there was an original estimate which then was increased. It was thought at one point that we would actually need more. Then with the scheme being being up and running um, uh, and information being refined, that sought for increase uh, wasn't then actually uh, required, hence the 8.7 million uh, becoming available. Uh, but we're, we're confident that uh, you know the, 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 as a demand-led scheme, the demand will be met there. There is sufficient uh, sufficient there. If we do need to revise again and, and make a further further bid, then of course we would do so. But I don't see much likelihood of that at this stage. Okay, thank you. Um, just my final one, Chair. Um, in terms of uh, any pressure points within the overall budget and the department, are you? Is there any areas that you have concern over um, that you would have liked to have seen additional funding come into, or are you content with the current state of play? 
I, I don't think uh, uh, my finance director would be very pleased with me if I ever said I was I was content with, with our, our budget. I think she'd tell me that was an opportunity missed. Uh, but no, to, to to give you a more serious answer, um, the the area that is of biggest concern of to us by far is the victims' um, permanent disability payment scheme. That remains, uh, I think, a very significant risk, not just to TEO's finances but to the executive's finances. Hence, ministers continue to engage very seriously with, with the UK government to look at that. Not so much for this year. I mean, that bit of £19 million is a, a, a significant one overall. That will be difficult and challenging for, for DOF to find. Uh, nevertheless, it will be found. Ministers are given a legally binding undertaking uh, that the payments will be made. It's more in the succeeding years that I think we would be greatly concerned by the challenge, particularly year two, three and four of the scheme where I think the figures get very much larger uh, and that would be uh, really quite a significant challenge to our budget. Okay, thanks for that. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Colin. All right, thank you, John. We're going to bring Martina Anderson up next for her questions and pass over to Martina. Uh, thank you, Chair, and, and thanks for the presentation. And Chair, just to pick up on, on a question, uh, Chris, that the Chair asked around the Communities in Transition because I'm just a bit confused, um, given that the 12 million was sought and you got 10, and I know you've explained then the other three, and you did explain it's over a few years and it is a great program. But what I'm concerned about is in relation to if it is a cut uh, as such. Now, we know it's a Tory cuts that are coming through and whatever. I'm, I'm not focusing on that as much as what's the evaluation um, as to the impact that this is going to have on the communities, because we know that um, that the communities in transition is doing great work. I don't have a, a detailed evaluation, Martina, that I could point to, you know, with with, with figures on it, which which would give you, you know, um, the, the loss of benefit, uh, as it were. Though I'm sure we could we could make some estimates that? on that. Um, we can we can certainly try and estimate that, and at least give you an illustration of, uh, you know, the benefits. The benefit for foregone by that. Um, I suppose the aspect of what that concerns me most, and I'm sure it would concern members as well, is that it's it's the kind of work where you maximise the success if the communities that you're working with have confidence that that you're in it for the long run, that it's mm -hmm. not here today, gone tomorrow, yeah. that you're asking people to undertake uh, difficult and, and challenging work, you know, sometimes at at risk. And in order to do that, they, they need to have the confidence that the program is going to deliver and, and it's going to be, be there to stay. So it's much more difficult to achieve that if we're not able to say to people, this is exactly the size of the program, we will spend X and, and you can be, be certain of that. So, you know, we'd much prefer to be able to say it's 12 million pounds uh, and, 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 you know, that's definite. We're not in that position, but it's better than to, to stick at 10. It's better to be able to say, no, it's 10 plus three if, if we can get that. Would have been better if we'd been able to say 13 at the beginning, um, mm. but, you know, an extra three is better late than never. Chris, I'm concerned about in policy terms, it's like a policy hit and run for some communities. Um, who would see themselves being involved in for the long haul, 
uh, to make an impact and make a change in their communities and, and that also concerns me as well. So it would be good to get um, an update from you so if, if an evaluation is done, if that is required, depending on what's happening with, with the three million. Again, picking up on something the chair had raised with you around delivering social change because I'm, a very, I'm quite a fan of that program uh, when it was first in, introduced, particularly uh, the targets that it set to tackle poverty and social exclusion. And at the time when it was first introduced, um, and from memory, it represented a new level of joint up working uh, by ministers and, and senior officials as well, and across, across departments. And I can remember as we were trying to make sure that the programs were measured in a way that were making a difference to, to people's lives. Uh, we were looking at nearly 20,000 children who had received additional maths and English support. So are you saying that that 10-year program from deliver, uh, of delivering social change has come to an end of life? And are we talking about a new iteration of it? Because I'm concerned that given that the committee hasn't been presented, with a projection going forward for delivering social change, that we could be missing opportunities that in the past we know, whether it was family hubs, nurture units, things that actually made a difference to people's lives uh, that came out of this program. So I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that that, not that it has fallen off anyone's table, but maybe in the projection going forward that we as a committee aren't given an opportunity to scrutinize what the plan is. I think I can offer you at least some reassurance there, Martina. I absolutely agree with you on, on the success of the programme and on, on, on its different nature. You're absolutely right. Um, we, we don't at the moment have a DSC2 you know, to point to and say, here here's the detail of it. But I think there will be a further iteration of this. Now, it might be something uh, you know, very specific and very visible like that, which would be a DSC2, or it might be more in the nature of mainstreaming what is done in TEO and, and other departments. The point that you absolutely correctly make is around the right way to assess the benefits of, of uh, this sort of program and with my other hat on, you know, I would, I would link that back to the program for government and the program for government outcomes. You know, if we are in, able to uh, invest further in things like nurture units or the literacy and numeracy, numeracy um, efforts there, you know, those have a very direct um, impact, very directly measurable benefits in and around the particular departments that lead in those. But they also have other dimensions of benefits that go, go much wider than that. We all know the link between early years uh, and health and social well-being in, in later life. So, you know, the proper development of whatever comes after DSC needs to be able to capture the whole range of benefits that would accrue from it and needs to join together, uh, you know, as DSCC did, but perhaps even, you know, going further than that, joining together a range of inputs and investments from departments, uh, you know, in a much broader way than, than we've done in the past. Now, there are challenges in that. Uh, you know, you can mm -hmm. very easily disappear down rabbit holes uh, mm -hmm. on, on that. Uh, and we do need to be able to then to bring that together into proposals that, as you say, uh, this committee and other committees can scrutinize very carefully to make sure we're getting it right. So we're not there yet. I think we will see this more likely uh, in the multi-year budget that we hope we're heading for for next year and a multi-year program for government that you know a new, a new assembly mandate, a new executive going into after the executive, hopefully when we're beyond 
uh, you know, the first wave of, of COVID recovery can start to look at these sorts of multi-year cross-departmental, cross-sectoral programs. And, you know, we'll see much more of a DSC approach right across government. Chris, can I ask you, does the executive subcommittee chaired by the junior ministers and supported by a DSC board, a program board, does that still exist? I don't know, Martina. I'd have to, I'd have to check that and come back to you. I certainly mm-hmm. don't, think it's, don't think it's been active recently. Well, Chair, I think it would be good for us to get an evaluation of the DSC 1 um, and the iteration of that throughout those years and the impact that that's had um, to inform um, our understanding. However, the delivering social change is going to work going forward, and I agree with you, it should be co-designed and linked into the programme for government with all the ministerial opportunities that you would to do this cross-cutting. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank, thanks very much for that, Martina. Um, Chris, can I just clarify on the back of what Martina said there, just for my own understanding, because in the Communities in Transition, you had asked for 12. Um, is that for one year, or is that 12 million over three years? Because if you've asked for 12, you got 10, then you're looking for three. That's an increase in that budget. But is that 12 million per year that you're looking over three years? or? No, it was 12, 12 over three years, Chair. Um, yes, the, the offer, if you like, was, was 10 uh, over three years, which, which is very welcome. If we can put an additional 3 million in, into that, uh, yes, you're right, it's, it, it's even better. Um, it's, it's, we always describe it as an investment. It's, it's investing in communities, and that might mean that, for example, we're able to look at, at the number of CIT areas and, and expand. You know, we, we already do what you might call some you know, halo work uh, around the edges of the areas. We might actually be able to formally expand it into similar areas. No, that's great. It was just from my own head to work out just where we were going with that. Listen, if we could ask Pat Sheehan to be brought up next for questions, and we'll get Pat into the spotlight and pass over to himself. Yeah, just continuing on that theme, Chris. Um, the original bid was 12. Uh, we got 10. Now with the easement and in the, in the HIA redress scheme, there's there's some bit of a slush fund there, and you've asked for three. Why then was the original bid only 12 when, when now you're actually looking for 13? Just, I'm not complaining, I'm just curious about it. <laughs> It's, it's sometimes part more more art than science. Uh, it's, it's always a delicate balance between what you think you might get, uh, and of course what what you think you can spend uh, and, and spend well. And this is one where you know Neil and colleagues and myself as well did press the team very hard and say, now are are you sure you can spend this, and are you sure you can spend it well? They've given us very clear assurances uh, to to that regard, which which is great. And um, it is it's it's a one off opportunity. Uh, we think. It's, it's right to grab it and, and get the best return on it that we can. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I, I think you could add another couple of million onto that and it would still get spent. Uh, but in any event, uh, and just one other question, most of the other stuff I was going to ask has already been asked. Uh, tell us, why was the paper so late coming, Chris? Uh, apologies uh, if, if that made the work of, of the committee more more difficult. Um TEO, as you know, is, is unique in that um, proposals and advice to ministers have to be agreed on, on both sides of the department. Sometimes that takes a little longer than it does in a department just with one minister. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. 
Okay, thanks a lot. Could I recommend, Kristen, you start the process a bit sooner and then maybe you'll have longer to get it past both sides of the house and then you'll be able to, to, to deliberately point to which side of the house is holding it up in the future, if that that helps us. But I know uh, thanks. Uh, I base my career on, on, on avoiding doing that, Chair, at, at every opportunity and at, and at the risk of being seen to reach for another excuse. Uh, the, the timing of the monitoring per round per se is, is not an RGF that's kicked off by DOF. Half in jest with that, Chris, half, half in jest. Um, Emma Sheeran has her hand up there. If we could bring Emma up into the spotlight. Thanks Emma. a million, Chair, and apologies in advance if I drop out here because I've, I've had a connection failure three or four times here. So um, I, I, I'm... No, I think he is. Can you hear me here? Okay, thanks very much. Oh, no, am I? You're not, you're there, Emma, we can hear oh, you. Right. Don't know what happened there. No, I just want to thank you all for the presentation. Um, I have a question around the questions have been asked there around the, the change in money. I wonder if the money for the dedicated mechanism funding has in any way been linked, has been affected by this. And I also, I suppose it's more a comment um, than a question for yourselves. We know that the budget and during the debate yesterday, there was lots of commentary around the impact of Brexit. And at several times, the speaker and deputy speaker advised members that that was an unrelated matter. But I don't think we can look at any of these things in a vacuum. And I know, you know, from engagement with, with groups in my own area and Mid-Ulster benefited massively from the EU funding and from RDP in particular. And it had a real last an impact when you talk about good relations community relations t-buck all of these schemes the the money that was pumped into rural development locally and community groups ga clubs uh after schools clubs all of those things that had a, a real were doing real work in their communities so i just i would i would like to sort of ask about the impact on that on the shortfall and if that's leaving work for these programs to try and catch up on and whether or not there's learning there because i know that there have been concerns um around you know, the peace plus and some of that money that was sent to quite academic um projects and focused around universities and stuff as opposed to making real difference on the ground thank you Thanks, Emma. And a number of points there. Um, I mean, there's no doubt, I think the thread running through all of that is it's a time of transition, uh, and the transition is, is quite challenging, quite difficult. I don't think there's any specific impact on anything we've put to you on, on the dedicated mechanism, but colleagues will, will, will keep me right on that uh, and may want to say a little bit more about, about Peace Plus. But more generally across the landscape, you know, what we're seeing is uh, the ending of some streams of European funding and some new streams of funding coming forward that are primarily under, uh, much more under the control of the, the Westminster government and the various funds that, that, have, that have been uh, announced. And we're certainly seeing uh, a change in, in delivery there with much more um, direct involvement by uh, Westminster government departments in terms of the administration uh, of, of those funds. So one of the challenges for us, I think, is in working out how the devolved administration plugs into that, um, how, how ministers are able to influence it, how we're able to provide advice on it, and how we're able to join up the spend um, by Westminster departments and, and Westminster managed funds 
with the efforts of, of the development association as well and the various programs that we have underway. There's no doubt that's that's a complication and that's a challenge for us and we haven't fully worked out the answer to, to that yet. And I think over particularly over the, the next six to nine months we've we've got some hard work to do there and hammering that out. You happy enough, Emma? Yeah, no, thanks, Chair. And I suppose that's just what, because I know even in, when Chris made reference there to the, the new streams that are coming from the British government, and obviously we're lacking in detail around that. And I know I've had people knocking my door down from groups in my own area in South Derry that seen, you know, we had 10 million in Middleston over the course of five years from RDP. And that was felt immediately and very, very, had a real impact for uh, local communities. So, we can, we, I suppose we can almost be a wee bit cynical or, or, or sort of lose hope or lose faith when we hear about these funding streams that are coming from the British government. We don't see any detail and time is ticking on, but I appreciate you guys are working in the, in the context that has been set for you by others. So I appreciate that. And that's me, Chair. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much for that, Emma. I just want to check with Trevor Lunn uh, and or Trevor Clark. Neither have their hand up there, but just to check in case they have any questions that they want to ask there. Uh, no, thanks, Chair. I'm fine. Thank you. Okay, and I think the same for Trevor. Okay, um, right, Chris, Nina, Tara, thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you for that presentation, the information, uh, the update. Uh, wish you well in getting that money for the department and the work that it does. Thank you for your ongoing work there as well. Um, I know we've asked for a couple of bits of information. And I'm sure you'll you'll get that to us as well. So thank you very much indeed. We'll let you head on. And members, we'll just take a moment then. Sure. Uh, move on to item six, which is the COVID recovery and oral evidence session from the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland. Members on page 91 to 197 of the meeting pack are the relevant papers, and we will get our presenters up into the spotlight, and we can welcome Mr. Paul Brisquet, Head of Innovation and Voice at the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland, uh, Rebecca McCabe, the Senior Project Officer with Involve, and Louise O'Kane, who is a planner with Community Places. With the three of you now up into the spotlight, you're very welcome to our committee this afternoon. Thank you very much for coming along to give us an update on your perspective on COVID and COVID recovery uh, and what uh, the Community Foundation can do for that. Paul, I think, are we handing over to yourself uh, to give us a presentation with your colleagues and then we can move into some questions and answers after that? Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Chair, and uh, we're delighted to have the opportunity to present to you today. Uh, so you've introduced us already, so I won't uh, go over that again. But um, I, you have our evidence paper, and we, we do look forward to hearing members' comments and, and questions on that. Um, we plan to present for about 15 minutes, if that's all right. Um, I'll make a few overall remarks to get us started, and then I'll hand over to Rebecca and Louise. Our, our topic for today is, as you say, COVID recovery, and, and particularly public participation in decision-making around COVID recovery. And we'd like to talk around the longer-term uh, context for public participation in decision-making in Northern Ireland as well. Um, so our three organisations are all committed to greater public participation in uh, decision-making across the board. We've been collaborating for a number of years around initiatives like the 2018 Citizens' Assembly for Northern Ireland 
and also the creation of the Participatory Budgeting Works Network, which has supported the rollout of participatory budgeting as, as an approach right across Northern Ireland in recent years. Uh, my own work in the Community Foundation, our Civic Innovation Programme, which is about stimulating and supporting creative new approaches to involving the public in decision making. So we're, we're here to talk particularly about the role of public participation in COVID recovery, but I'd like to reflect for a moment on the kind of bigger picture, the context of governance and devolution in Northern Ireland. Um, and as members will be uh, all too aware, over recent years, it's been a picture of, I suppose, institutional fragility and unfortunately also of declining public trust in decision making. The whole idea of devolution is, of course, to bring decision making closer to people. Um, and in talking about public participation in decision making, we're very much looking to help strengthen democracy and devolution in Northern Ireland. So, of course, elections and representation are the absolute core of our democracy. Uh, but I think that on their own, um, they're not enough to ascertain the very many complex and shifting viewpoints of and priorities of, of people, whether individually or collectively, much less to provide an op opportunity to engage in detail with evidence or in deliberation with one another. So this very much connects with the idea. Which aren't, of course, in but simply the idea that we should involve people as much as possible in between elections um, in decision-making. So participative and deliberative processes lead not only to better outcomes on specific issues, but they also can contribute to increased public trust, greater social cohesion, and even uh, better individual well-being through giving people a greater sense of control over their own lives. That could, can and, and should take many different forms, uh, but today we're gonna focus in on two particular approaches namely citizens' assemblies and participatory budgeting. Um, and the reason we're focusing on those is because, firstly, we think they represent a step change in the level of ambition that they bring to public participation compared to what has been tried in Northern Ireland or indeed many other places in, in previous years. They are also tried and tested methods with a very strong evidence base, not only internationally, but across the UK and Ireland and including some existing practice here in Northern Ireland. Um, they're very complementary approaches as well. They both aim to develop a more participatory and deliberative approach to decision-making. To have decisions that are more. Um, um, and they are uh, complementary and slightly different in their approach in that citizens' assemblies tend to focus on representativeness, um, whereas participatory budgeting focuses on a more open and self-selecting approach to public participation. So we've been um, engaging with elected representatives on this already for several years, in fact, and we've had many positive conversations and responses from right across the political spectrum. And in that context, it was really pleasing to see the commitment in the New Decade New Approach Agreement to a new year of structured civic engagement, including through the commissioning of at least one Citizens' Assembly per year. Um, of course, uh, as with a lot of other things, this was somewhat derailed by the pandemic, and it was understandable that all the focus went on emergency response in those initial months and, and uh, commitments in NDNA took something of a back seat. But COVID-19 has further underlined and exacerbated the many chronic underlying issues and inequalities that in fact require greater public participation uh, to resolve. Um, so it's uh, and on, the, on the positive side as well, um, and we can say this particularly at the community, a lot of money around uh, 
seen that the public and our communities um, are more than up to the task of collaborating and taking action together with government to respond to shared challenges, including in working in, in new and different ways. So with that in mind, from last summer onwards, really, we, we began a, a fresh process of engagement with government and elected representatives to encourage that the NDNA commitment to structured civic engagement be put front, front and centre of our COVID recovery plan. And so we, we reached out and we held seminars with uh, MLAs from across parties in the autumn, also with departmental officials. Uh, we engaged in particular with TEO, uh, also the Department for Communities and Department of Finance. And we found that what we're saying chimes with priorities and programs right across all sections of government. But I suppose that what is missing is a strong sense of political leadership, encapsulated, of course, in the NDNA commitment, but that what would really help uh, the civil service and officials is a strong signal from um, a polit polit political representatives that these approaches are the way forward and are what we should use in reframing the way we make decisions and, and devise policy. And on the foot of that, we met with the junior ministers in January, um, and then we were asked to submit the, the more detailed route maps, which we've included in your evidence pack today for how a citizen assembly and participatory budgeting could be delivered in Northern Ireland in the context of COVID recovery. So those were submitted in February, and, and we're waiting for a follow-up meeting with the, with the junior ministers uh, to hear what action will be taken. So just to summarise, kind of our, if we have some asks of you of the committee today, they would be threefold. Firstly, to encourage the executive office to act without further delay in delivering upon the NDNA commitment in the context of COVID recovery. Um, and then going further to ensure that the programme for government, uh, the one that's currently being devised, but of course another one which will be coming up in the not too distant future, includes and further enshrines that NDNA commitment to structured civic engagement that recognises the role of methodologies like citizen assemblies and participatory budgeting to, to both help deliver all of the PFG outcomes, but also that they deliver outcomes in their own right by making a direct contribution to individual and collective well-being. And that very much links with international frameworks around well-being used by the likes of the OECD and the Carnegie Trust, where democratic outcomes are put on an equal footing with economic, social and environmental outcomes. And then finally, another opportunity for Northern Ireland to demonstrate its leadership around this issue would be within the upcoming uh, Open Government Action Plan, which the executive is devising and um, being coordinated through the Department of Finance, but with key input from the executive office. And we like to ensure that that contains an ambitious commitment around citizen participation, including through greater use of these approaches. So with that, I'll hand over to Rebecca, who's going to focus on citizens' assemblies. And then from there, Louise will speak about participatory budgeting. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you, Paul. Am I, am I good to go? Yes, go on ahead. That's fine, Rebecca. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon to everyone, and, and thanks for having us here. Um, so um, I just wanted to say a little bit about Involve, about the organisation that I'm representing today before I start. So we're a charity that works to ensure that people are at the heart of decision-making, um, and we do that in a number of ways. So, um, so chiefly by specialising in techniques that enable people to influence the decisions that shape their lives. Um, so we design and we run those processes. So we're involved in that very practical way. We also do research around them um, to ensure that they're continually improving and innovating and so that we understand their impacts and are able to share what we know with other people. 
Um, and we also work with partners and stakeholders to see how um, how these techniques can kind of fit with the existing political system and how they can work for decision makers as well as for the public. Um, and really, we see these practices as being essential and normal parts of a healthy democracy mm-hmm. and its core to good governance and, um, and to an efficient and effective public sector. So I'm here today to talk to you about one of those techniques, which is a citizens assembly. Um, so first of all, a citizens assembly is, uh, is a randomly selected representative group of people who are brought together to discuss an issue or issues and to reach a conclusion about what they think should be done. Um, So it's really a technique to support decision making on issues that are that are either complex, contentious, moral or constitutional or, you know, or or, or all four. Um, Citizens assemblies have a number of um, of very important key features. Um, So possibly the most important is that its membership is selected at random um, and um, that's done usually through a technique called civic lottery um, and I'm happy to to talk in more detail about that in in the discussion if people are curious. Um, But basically you are bringing together a sample of the population that is reflective um, in um, in terms of demographic diversity but possibly also of diversity in other terms such as attitudes or opinions towards the topic that they're looking at. Um, you can't lobby to, um, to be a member of a citizens assembly. It's a, it's a, it's a lottery um, and no prior knowledge or, or even interest in the topic is a requirement of taking part. Um, Another key feature is that significant time is given over to learning about the issues. So because the issues that are put to citizens' assemblies are often um, very complex, there can be um, a lot of technical information to work through. So a lot of time is spent uh, um, in kind of levelling that playing field and making sure that this big, diverse group of people um, are all kind of on the same equal footing in terms of their understanding of the issue. So time is given to kind of defining key terms, understanding the scope of the issue, um, the context and, and so on. There will also be impartial oversight, and this can vary from um, from process to process and different commissioning bodies have done this in different ways. Um, but the, the existence of impartial oversight is a constant in, in, in the Citizens' Assembly model, and that would be a body that exists um, independent of the commissioner that is there to ensure that the information and evidence that the, the members of the Citizens' Assembly hear is, is balanced and accurate. So um, so making sure that, um, that any technical evidence is um, peer-reviewed, up-to-date, all of that, um, that any um, sort of attitudinal evidence or lived experience evidence is unbiased, um, and if there is bias detective detected that they can kind of guide that and, and correct that um, and make sure that it's as um, that it's as even um, as possible. And um, and finally, a lot of time is given to deliberation, and deliberation is another really really key and important feature of a of a citizens assembly. So this means that um, that the the members after. Uh, after hearing about the topic, get a lot of time to to think about it, to discuss it, to weigh up different viewpoints, um, to kind of think about the evidence that they've heard and essentially try and find common ground and a shared vision for the way forward. The process tends to end with a process of collective decision making and then the outcome will be a set of very, very detailed recommendations, again, that have been informed by evidence um, about what the the, the way forward should be for for decision makers. So um, 
as Paul kind of said, you know, uh, there's lots of benefits to these approaches, in, including that they can be really important mechanisms for developing those shared visions for society. Um, they can really enrich what policymakers and deci decision makers know um, about what the public want, because you're getting this kind of systematically thought through information that's based on evidence. So it's informed public opinion rather than kind of top of the mind um, reactions to, um, to policy proposals or to issues. Um, because you have such a diverse group of people in the room for such an extended period of time, you're really getting recommendations that respond very closely to what people actually need. Um, and it, it can it can produce a lot of, a lot of uh, democratic legitimacy. So there's, there's lots of evidence emerging that um, that um, the public at large, that their attitudes towards recommendations that come from processes like citizens' assemblies is that they see them as at least as legitimate and in often, in many cases, often more legitimate than decisions that are made um, by politicians alone. So it can really start to enhance people's understanding of um, of policy outcomes. It can create a greater sense of um, of uh, of understanding of the kind of trade offs and difficult compromises that people make when they're um, when they're creating policy and making decisions. Um, and it can um, it can create conditions where sort of entrenched positions um, can can be dissolved. So, so where issues are very highly polarized, it can kind of bring people together um, and find ways to to, to move forward. Um, I want to leave lots of time for, uh, for, for questions, so I'm, I'm going to wrap up shortly. But just in terms of what we are asking from the executive at the moment, um, and to pick up on, on some of Paul's points. So, so we really want to see this this really brilliant commitment in NDNA to, to one citizens' assembly a year and structured civic engagement kind of um, it's delivered on. And we think that a COVID response is, is the perfect way to start. And I think you know the essence of this Build Back Better campaign ask is that um, this is an opportunity to address issues that have actually gone unresolved perhaps for, for too long. Um, and we have had experience now over the last 18 months of delivering these processes uh, online um, and we don't see there being any reason to delay until we know that in-person processes are, are, are kind of safe and, and possible. Um, but we also want to see um, we, we also want to see a long term view and a sustainable and strategic view and we would like to see these practices embedded in the work of government. Um, we would love to see these built into a participation strategy that um, that embeds best practice across government and that really creates this sense of a, a common purpose across all of the departments. Um, we think that it's very important that um, that there's a center um, a center of excellence within the civil service to embed the expertise and the learning that you will get from doing these. So if you you know if, if there's one commissioned around COVID recovery, that there's an opportunity to really build capacity within the civil service. And, and there is a lack, I think, of, uh, currently of specialist skills in this regard. Um, and, and I think a structure, some kind of unit that is well resourced and empowered and enabled to kind of. Um, to, to provide that, that, that service, to provide guidance on when to commission these kinds of participatory processes is really important. And you'll, you'll, see, you'll see kind of benefits in terms of cost and efficiencies if that's done. And again, to echo a point that Paul made, it's really important that we see strong, um, strong political leadership. So as well as kind of resourcing this and creating those enabling structures, there needs to be a willingness to do things a little bit differently um, and to make getting this right a really high priority for, um, for, for the executive and I think across the assembly as well. So, um, so I'm going to leave it there and let Louise pick up and talk about participatory budgeting and I'm really looking forward to your questions. Okay, Louise, go on ahead. 
Thanks, thanks very much, Chair. Thanks, Rebecca. And um, thank you very much for, for the opportunity to present to you today. Um, I work with Community Places and we're a regional um, charity which specialises in three key areas, um, planning advice, community engagement and community planning. And we coordinate the PB Works um, network as well. Um, and I want to talk to you, as, as Rebecca just said, about participatory budgeting. So, as you know, PB is all about citizens um, having a direct say on the spending and priorities of part of a public budget. Um, and there's a famous saying from Porto Alegre where, P where PB actually developed. But if it feels like we've decided it's PB, but if it feels like someone else has decided it isn't. Um, and that really gets to the crux of what PB is, is all about. It's really about connecting citizens to actual decision-making processes. So PB is recognised as an effective way for empowering, building resilient um, and, and stronger communities. And it's been commended by the UNESCO, World Bank, the OECD and the UN. Um, and it's really about adopting a rights-based approach to policymaking and budgeting and delivering a more equitable and effective allocation of existing resources and investment in our places and communities. So across the region now, we have had over 20 PB participatory grant making processes, and that's where um, money is spent by and within communities as directed by citizens. And that has really established a really good work in relationships with local authorities. Eight of the 11 um, have been involved in PB processes to date. Others are currently planning and um, participatory grant making processes and they've involved numerous statutory partners, departments, and the community and voluntary sector, sector in those processes. Um, most recent examples which have been delivered during the pandemic successfully include the Tech 500 PB process in Armagh, Bambridge and Craigavon, and also the Youth Making It Happen um, co-designed um, co by Young People process in Derry, Londonderry and Strabane. So participatory grant making PB approaches have been tried and tested and they've been very successful at reaching out to people, effective in encouraging participation from marginalised individuals and communities and delivering real tangible local change, enhancing public trust in local democracy. But really to achieve the full potential of PB, um, it's really important to go further through actually mainstreaming its use. And that's where money is spent by public bodies as directed by citizens. So mainstreaming PB therefore implies making public participation through PB a much more frequent experience um, and also embedding it within service planning to make service delivery more responsive to local priorities. Post-COVID, COVID, we think this is a, a critical moment to, to embed PB and to develop it at scale to deliver better outcomes and importantly to put citizens on an equal footing a genuine partnership where communities have an equal stake in investment decisions in their places. We feel that it now needs executive support to really elevate it, a signal that it is an effective, accountable and transparent process and that should be mainstreamed. The route map, as requested by the junior ministers, really charts a way forward for the executive in delivering on their NDNA commitments and structured civic engagement in the context of post-COVID recovery and renewal. And I'd just like to set out some of the asks in that. So we'd really welcome, firstly, cross-party support from the executive ministers to promote the use of PB in the distribution of COVID recovery funds. That would really demonstrate a commitment to ensuring society can participate in building stronger communities and shaping investment in post-COVID public service transformation and people, communities being actively involved in pandemic recovery and renewal. 
Secondly, an investment in a core programme to move PB from incubation to consolidation. Um, and we think we should be really ambitious um, and invest up to £1 million per year in a core programme to consolidate PB over the next four years. That would ensure that citizens can participate in decisions shaping their local community and society. Um, that could be allocated through two strands, 50% um, to directly incentivise departments and local authorities to invest PB, and that would also stimulate match funding, um, and 50% to raise awareness and promote PB and ensuring that there's a civic voice in the development of PB, building capacity, innovation and, and competencies. Our third request and ask really is that there's cross-party support from executive uh, ministers to a longer-term commitment to the, in the next and the following programme of governments to the allocation of a percentage of departmental revenue through PB by 2027. PB should then become a key standard by which participatory democracy is delivered across the region, shaping responsive budgets and programmes through innovation, which builds on the new ways of working and strengthened relationships which have re re emerged in response to COVID-19. And lastly, that the executive should support the Department for Communities and the Department of Finance to lead on delivery of a demonstration project by establishing a region-wide strategic group. This would support the demonstration project, but also develop concrete next steps towards mainstreaming participatory budgeting and that commitment to allocate a percentage of public resources, of existing public resources via PB, um, and delivered through the, this and the, the following programme for governments. So thank you very much um, for taking the time to listen to us. Um, we'd really welcome uh, your comments and questions and, and I'll pass back to you, Chair. Louise, thank you very much for that. And to Paul and Rebecca for that um, very interesting and keeping us updated. I know I'd met with you before um, previously to discuss this. And um, there's definitely value uh, in the work that's there of involving uh, citizens to be able to uh, articulate their thoughts, their views. Um, I suppose in some respects, given that we are still within a contested space and within a political uh, sphere of competing priorities on the same level, that being able to pass over to the citizens to get to some of their views and their thoughts on issues could provide a certain clarity that may not always be uh, easy to seek from um, political worlds. Um, but maybe just to ask a question um, in terms of maybe or maybe groups like our, our, our committees such as yourselves, how, how do you feel that um, sort of that community participation maybe through a citizens assembly or whatever could interact directly with the committees there are in, in the assembly? I mean, how would you see that there would be that interaction between uh, a citizens assembly and our assembly or would it do you, do you think it would be topic driven or just how would that interaction process be between ourselves so um I, i'll just say a quick word there and i think rebecca might want to come in um i do apologize it feels like my commitment my connection is a little bit uh, jumpy um but i'll, I'll press on um, Yes, I mean, uh, these initiatives can be used by any body or institution, whether governmental or parliamentary. So they absolutely could also be used by committees. Uh, and a number of years ago, actually, we had engagement with the Communities Committee around this and whether the committee could use um, approaches like citizens assemblies, mini publics, 
uh, to reach out when they're considering policy and legislation as part of their scrutiny role. So that and Rebecca will probably have examples to, to draw from there. But then I suppose they can also be used by government departments. Um, but Rebecca, I think I'll, I'll best hand over to you there because you'll be able to give some more concrete examples of this. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Paul. Um, so, yeah, as, as Paul said, there, you know, there is an existing relationship between um, in other parliaments between committees and these processes. So the, um, the, the two citizens assemblies that have been commissioned out of Westminster have been commissioned by um, by select committees, actually, rather than by um, by the government departments or the government itself. Um, and it's definitely part of, of their kind of their scrutiny role that they have put this they put these issues. So the, the first one was on uh, uh, social care um, and the, in England, and the second was that was the the Climate Assembly UK. Um, so certainly, certainly, there's an established role there. Um, I, I think the best way to see this in some ways is that this provides an input into policy making. Um, so once you have a, you know, whether that's whether that's defined by a topic or defined by some other question, um, you know, there, there should be a clear sense of what difference will be made by asking the public to weigh in in this kind of very, very detailed and informed way. And it's very much, you know, it, it's very much advisory. So it doesn't it doesn't replace any of the existing parliamentary structures, um, but it can very much complement them and just kind of it, it enrich the information that's feeding into those decisions that are being made. I said it was a kind of leads on the other thought I had, which was about the weight that there would be between um, the decision, maybe that a citizens assembly or, or, you know, some participatory process would reach versus maybe if the elected representatives directly had a completely different view. Is it is it just I suppose, at its core advisory to, to the elected representatives on the decision they take, or would it be, um, is there some sort of compulsion that if you're engaging a participatory process that you kind of agree at the outset that you will take on board what this um, process would reach? Yeah, so I think I, I think the um, b because of the scale of the, of the project, um, the investment that you're asking assembly members to make um, there, there is an assumption that, and, and because of, because all of the evidence, because these are very informed opinions, there is a there is a kind of presumption towards um, towards implementing the recommendations, or at the very least, towards a very detailed response. If that's not the case, um, so they so. Um, there needs to be so what, whatever the topic is that goes in front of a citizens assembly. There needs to be an openness to, by, by, policy, by politicians to, to listen to what the response is. So something where there is a lot of kind of there's a um, yeah there's a closed mindedness on an issue or a very entrenched position maybe isn't ideal because you really do need to get um, all all parties uh, to the position of saying yeah we're actually open to we're open to this input. Um, and we're open to having our our, um, our position changed by by this input and by listening, um, and that's really where it has value. So, in the context of in the context of COVID recovery, it's, it's a it's a really good opportunity to do this because a lot of the issues that we're talking about aren't necessarily that polarized, and they do cut across all communities in Northern mm -hmm. Ireland. So, issues like deprivation, like education, even things like um, like infrastructure. I know you're hearing from the High Street Task Force issues like that, like town centre regeneration, urban planning, um, are very often put to forums like this, um, and, and can get really really good outcomes from from bringing in the the, the general public to, to weigh in on the issues. Um, so, so generally, yeah, there there needs to be a condition of just of just openness to being influenced by by what the recommendations are. And just to briefly add on to that as well, um, 
it's interesting in the OECD have conducted some research quite recently about the use of citizens assemblies and, and mini publics in particular uh, amongst its member countries and have found that um, in over 70% of cases, more than half the recommendations of the citizens assemblies have been implemented. Um, and I think in a, is a third of cases, Rebecca, that all of the uh, recommendations have been implemented and that is not because they set them up so that they were obliged to implement them. That is that is because when they, they were produced, that that was genuinely useful material mm. recommendations for government and whether that resulted in elected representatives changing their views or government taking a slightly different position than it took before. And it, they fulfilled their role in being able to provide practical and useful ways forward. I mean, the, the one that people might, I, that I've seen most recently in the news was in France where the um, they brought in a new rule about domestic air travel. Um, and that was one of the things that came out of um, the French president's, um, there was a, a form of citizens assembly that took place in France looking around um, climate change. Um, and that resulted in, um, in, in one of the recommendations that was followed through on was around um, uh, placing less emphasis on domestic air travel and use of other forms of public transport instead. Um, but I, I don't know if, um, if Louise wants to come in there, uh, but I'm happy to hand back to you. Okay, that's good. Yeah, no, don't, 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 Louise, have you anything to, to add there? Or? No, no, that's fine. It's, it's okay. You kind of get put on the spot whenever you're in a virtual conversation like that, but don't feel that everybody needs to answer every question because uh, sometimes I can just make the, the sessions last a, a bit longer than they need to. Um, I'm going to pass over to, to John Stewart as the deputy chair of the committee for his questions. John, we'll pass to yourself. Thanks, Chair. Sorry, I couldn't get off mute there. Um, hopefully you can hear me. Rebecca, Louise, Paul, thanks for the presentation so far. It's really, really interesting. Um, I suppose with all as local representatives assume, like to think that we are the people's assembly because, or this is assembly because we're meant to represent the people, but we're not naive enough to believe that we can conquer all issues. And I think for the most difficult things, and we've been notoriously bad at times collectively at getting over the difficult issues, citizens' assemblies can undoubtedly play a role in that. And that's why I do think it is it is very exciting. But what I want to dive into is maybe just some of the difficulties others have faced. Um, I, I looked in a little bit into the Republic of Ireland, for example, and one of the issues they faced was the issue around retention. I noticed that only 61 out of the 99 had actually lasted the 18 months. And women in particular, and women, young women in particular, were those who find it most difficult to stay on because of the lack of childcare facilities or the support for them. Uh, and that, I would have a fear, would lead to an imbalance potentially on that citizens' assembly. How do you propose we overcome that to ensure that there's a fair and equitable representation on that? Um, I can um, I can respond to that, John. Um, so uh, the um, yeah the, the Irish Citizens' Assembly took an approach of of not incentivising um, participation. Um, and, and actually, the, you know, it was a, a huge time commitment for, for people. Um, we would take a, a different position and actually one of the standards that we um, that we would call for in, in all citizens assemblies is that attendance is um, is incentivized with a, an honorarium. So, a, you know, essentially a cash or equivalent uh, payment to to um, to reward people for for giving them giving their time. In addition to that, we would also cover any costs related to, to somebody taking part. And we have done in, in the processes that we've run. And we would advise people to build that into their costs for this, that, you know, if there are people who have caring responsibilities of, of you know, childcare or, or other caring responsibilities, that that's, um, 
that, that that expense is covered to enable them to take part because you do see an effect actually on on diversity so you can start with a very diverse sample and then you can see that kind of fall away if you don't make sure that people are supported so we do incentivize it financially we also um we, we also spend quite a lot of time particularly with online processes building up people's it skills making sure they have the right equipment to take part making sure that the materials are um, are presented accessibly, both in terms of kind of um, vision impairments, but also um, in terms of different different kind of literacy levels. And um, so all of that is very, very much built into the design. And it does, you know, you have to be very careful with things like that because it, you know, as much as possible, you want to make it a, um, a level playing field and there will be differences like that that come in that need to be, need to be kind of identified and, and looked after. Okay, thanks, Rebecca. I mean, that, that's reassuring. And I think if we wanted to see assemb an assembly, so this assembly that was fully reflective and no one should be impacted by their inability to maybe use tech equipment or the impact on their on their life financially, and the fact that that would be is quite good. In terms of those maybe who are working second jobs, who are maybe underemployed or who have families and time commitments, do you still think that there's a, you know, like in do you say Irish Republic model they were I think it was ten weekends and it was quite a quite a taxing period. Are you confident that this could be laid out in a way that almost anybody could participate and that no one would priced out of it time wise or financial wise? Um so, so we all I can say is kind of our our experience from from running many of these now, especially over the last couple of years, and the re the retention rate is really is really excellent. Um, it really is. I mean, the, the, the drop off rate would be kind of 1% um, okay. and, and very often, um, and a lot of my role is kind of that direct interface actually with assembly members. So I, so I can kind of, I could speak with some authority, even if it is anecdotal, that the, you very often the reasons are um, that, you know, that they, they've gotten ill and they've had to miss a weekend and then they've had, they've, they've kind of struggled to catch up or circumstances have changed. But, but it's, it's very rarely that, you know, I can't, I can't afford to take time off work or, um, you know, or because we would we would have hoped to establish a relationship with people where they're they're able to say that and we're able to provide support to make that not an issue. Okay. Um, just two final things, Chair, for me, because um, it's quite a really, a really interesting topic. There, there is money factored in of, of 485,000. Um, is that a recurring one year cost, as you'd see going forward, or does that cover setup costs or um, people's reimbursement for that? I'm just trying to get a, a feel for what that um initial cost or running cost of the citizens of MP might be oh um i'm not familiar with that where that figure came from was that um, in the roadmap i believe so yeah there's okay. in paper, uh, one million pounds for participating budget and 485 maybe they are maybe they are um departmental costs i'm not sure just to maybe draw a distinction between the citizens assembly and the participatory budgeting so louise and rebecca might both want to say something but um so, Rebecca, if you want to explain kind of the cost behind citizens' assemblies, and then Louise, maybe some of those figures might be drawn from from your section. Yeah. So, with the citizens' assembly, they are expensive. They they cost a lot um, to do um, for for some of the reasons that we've set out. So, um, so the cost of of random recruitment of that civic lottery process is reasonably expensive. Um, your um, if you're incentivizing payment, you know you're 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 giving say a hundred pounds to every participant for each weekend. That can add up. Um, if you're if you're talking about a hundred participants over four, five, six weekends, um, you have the facilitation cost. So there's independent facilitation, 
in reasonably small groups. Um, so of kind of five or six people just to enable that deliberation. Um, so that's you're looking at kind of paying 12, 13, 14 professional facilitators for those weekends as well. So they, they can be very expensive. And then there's the institutional costs as well. Um, they, they vary widely also depending on, um, you know, depending on, on lots of factors. So it's very hard to put a direct cost against them. But yeah, just kind of br breaking down where, where the money goes, it, it's really in, really a huge chunk of it is in that kind of, um, that, that quality assurance and making sure that there's, there's, there's good access for people from all different kinds of backgrounds. Okay. Um, I mean, I can come in in relation to PB, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's, I think that's going to be where the one million figure was in, in the route map for PB. Um, and that was really for an investment program in, in PB, really to kind of consolidate PB um, and also to, you know, stimulate match funding from departments and, and local authorities. And then also um, in terms of capacity building. Um, and it is, it is an ambitious figure, but it's drawing an experience from Scotland uh, where they've invested two million annually in PB. Um, and that equates to about 38p um, per, per resident per year. The equivalent we were talking about was around um, 52 pence um, per, per resident. Um, and in Scotland, it also attracted match funding of, of something in the region of 2.3 million. But I think the key point for participatory budgeting is that it can be the allocation of existing resources. You know, that was an additional um, an investment um, program that I was referencing, whereas actually additional resources, a percentage spend of additional resources used more creatively, perhaps via PB, for example, where you have the, the commitment in Scotland by COSLA for 1% spend. So in somewhere like Glasgow, that equates to... Um, 10 million and they've actually committed to two percent of their spend by um the end of of this year so that's uh, 20 20 million points if i could just say one thing quickly as well to, to to wrap up in terms of the value for money for both these kinds of processes is i think it's important to see them in the context of the entire policy cycle <clears throat> okay and, uh, Oh, yeah, you're back with us, Paul. Go on ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, my connection's not great. I was just saying that um, it's important to kind of take the view of the entire policy cycle when assessing the value for money of these approaches. And really what we're doing is repositioning some of the investment to the front or the beginning of the policy cycle. Whereas I suppose, arguably, if with a non-participative policy development process, you can end up with, um, with poorer decisions. Um, that can end up being challenged as well. And so you, you end up actually potentially spending a lot more money at other parts of the policy cycle, not, not to mention the kind of outcomes that these processes can deliver on themselves in terms of the, the value that the participants derive from taking part and the, the gradual buildup of our culture of uh, democracy and decision making that they can contribute to. Okay, um, no, that, that's really useful to know. One final point, um, I think that's, well, there's a strong argument that not only resolving difficult issues that these assemblies um, will overcome, but also it will lead to maybe a, a progression and a furthering of our politics here or anywhere else that they exist, because it actually takes um, politicians beyond their natural comfort zone and maybe let people see that actually those issues that they've always been stuck in the ground are, aren't actually that important to most people. Is there an argument for that, that maybe politicians get to see what people really think? <laughs> Well, I don't think any of us would want to argue that politicians don't uh, engage regularly at constituency level with grassroots and don't have kind of their, you know, their feet on the ground or anything like that. But I suppose it, it is the, as Rebecca had kind of highlighted, is that distinction between kind of the, 
the sort of um, what happens when you get that engagement with people after consideration of evidence and the opportunity to deliberate with one another. So I think that's kind of the sort of way we're used to engaging around issues is kind of snapshot oriented and also individual oriented. So that's the kind of the value of these processes. They allow for collective deliberation and in the presence of information and evidence and a kind of a level playing field for people in terms of what they know about the topic. That's that's the real added value. And, and that is something that's very difficult for politicians to do in their daily work, you know. So I think that's where it can really bring and be complementary to what politicians do already know about their communities and their constituents. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for that, everyone. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Cheers, um, thanks very much. Okay, um, I'm going to bring up the next member. We have about four members that are looking to ask questions here, but again, just from a chairing perspective, don't feel that all three of you need to answer each, because if each member has two or three questions and you all answer, uh, I don't want to cut us off, because um, we will need to, to finish about quarter to or ten to four, so we have about 15 minutes left. So if I could ask Martina Anderson to be brought up into the spotlight for her questions. Martina. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chair. And uh, I find the whole topic fascinating. Um, it's something that really addresses my own core values. And I've always felt, just in terms of commentary, that the differentiation between representative democracy and you know, the unseen tension there, whereby some people who believe that because we either get elected to represent people, that then that that's what we are charged with doing, as opposed to the value of participatory democracy. For me, Section 75 had that potential um, in the EGIA, but I believe it's been diluted and, um, and somewhat to the fact that it hasn't been as effective at all at all as Section 75 was set out and designed to be, even though it wouldn't go as far um, as what's been presented here around participatory democracy, around um, participatory budgeting. But I think it had an opportunity, but the screening out of it has destroyed it. Um, in relation to the, the, the New Decade, New Approach commitment to structural civic engagement and I'm conscious she's had a meeting with the junior ministers around citizens assembly and um, and a need for a participation strategy that cuts across uh, departments. Do you think that some of the work that has started around co-design, I'm thinking about the anti-poverty strategy, for instance, where the lived experience of those people on the ground is something that the minister is very keen to hear from that will shape the anti-poverty strategy. Is that going in some way towards uh, at least some of the concepts, even though it isn't fully what you're talking around here with Citizen Assembly? And I want to come back to you just in relation to that. But I'm wondering if you see something happening that's uh, that's going closer to your own uh, your own view of what needs to happen, which I would concur with in, in any democratic structure. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, I mean, there's, there are so many techniques for doing this, and I think there needs to be, a, you know, um, an, an element of judgment about what one is right for a particular situation. And I think with something like poverty, um, he, hearing from people with lived experience is really important. And, and in some cases, you know, that that's the information that you're going to need to make a good decision. But um, 
but I think opening it out to wider society is also very useful because very often when it comes to um, to creating policy or legislating on an issue, you will need to bring the general public with you. And to do that, in many cases, they're going to need a deeper understanding of certain issues than they will have at the start. Um, I think what we're arguing for with the participation strategy is that this is kind of that it's more um that there that there are clear standards and that there's a clear kind of place where that knowledge resides that other people can draw on so, so that you don't find yourself doing things on an ad hoc basis and never really sharing best practice or what, what has worked well um, and I think there's a real danger that that will happen without something that is kind of um, embedded at that, at that strategic level so that's kind of why we're making the, the case for that it's not to say that nothing good is, is happening but it's about really finding a way to make sure that that learning is shared across all departments. No, I concur with that, Rebecca. Rebecca, I think it was yourself when you mentioned, you know, that you can't just apply to join these citizens' assemblies or a bit of a lottery. So how do you ensure that the most marginalised communities, the most hardy rich, are represented on citizens' assembly, that it's that it's not just for the want of a description that I don't like, you know, either the great or the, and the good, but it's actually people with that lived experience that need to be engaging with these processes and shaping them. Yeah, so in a couple of different ways. So one is in the um, in the civic lottery process, you can you can kind of target a greater number of invitations towards uh, postcode areas that you know to be um, have higher levels of deprivation. Um, the financial incentive can go some way towards encouraging people, um, and then. Um, so you might send out 20, 30, 40,000 invitations across the population um, and get maybe a 5 or 6% response. And then based on that response, you build a sample that's representative and you can make sure that that is balanced to include people from more deprived um, areas, uh, different occupational backgrounds, different educational attainment, th those kinds of uh, characteristics. You can also make sure that the evidence that's being heard by the, the Citizens' Assembly includes people who are maybe marginalised from that conversation. So as well as hearing from civil society leaders, academics, um, that kind of knowledge, you can bring in people who have um, who have uh, expertise by experience and who have, you know, who, who can speak directly to what those issues are like in a lived way. Um, so, so you can you can kind of balance it out in that way as well. So th those are the main ways um, of, of doing it. Yeah. Can finally, can I ask just a question around the participatory budgeting? Um, you mentioned that there was um, 20 or over 20, I think, of those processes. And you said that eight of the 11 councils, I think, are they, are they involved in like a grant processes? Uh, could you just elaborate a bit more? And you mentioned Darren Shaban, I would be keen to hear a bit more about what councils are involved, if they are engaging with it in terms of my own council here in Darren Shaban, and uh, what's your sense of, of where that's all going? Yeah, so over uh, the last three years, um, as I said, eight of the local authorities have um, participated in PB processes, and they are those participatory grant-making processes, which are you know, really useful in terms of um, producing those tangible outcomes, reaching out to, to local communities, especially those that might be more marginalised. Um, quite a lot of that has been through the community planning partnerships, so it's also enabled kind of pulling of budgets and resources together. Um, the one I talked about in Darien Stravan um, was um, the youth, um, youth Making It Happen, which was actually co-designed and led by a group of young people. Um, it was right across the, the council area. 
Um, and it happened during COVID. Um, there were obviously issues in terms of school closures, youth clubs, because we're obviously um, trying to engage with young people in that process. So there were some challenges, but the young people um, and the council and um, the community planning, the strategic community planning partnership were extremely committed to the process. Um, it resulted in from across the council area um, 33 bids, which were um, identifying priorities that the young people had um, put forward. Um, and 842 young people actually voted um, right across the council area on, you know, to support and identify where that resource should go. So, I mean, it was a, a small enough resource. It was 20,000 pounds, but it was young people actually identifying ideas and projects to meet the, the issues and the priorities that they felt um, were most important in terms of giving young people a voice across the council area. Um, I said, said eight um, of the councils, but there are other local councils here currently planning processes. So it is nearly right across the board. Um, so I think it, it has been tried and tested now. A number of the councils, including Newry, Warren and Down, Lisburn and Castle Ray, um, Cosby Coast and Glens, have actually undertaken repeat PB processes. So they've, they've actually had a cycle of PB. Um, groups have been able to um, you know, nearly mature with the process as well and develop the priorities and the ideas and have more deliberation um, in that process, which has been very welcome. Um, but the, the issue is that that's at a certain scale and really for PB to have the most impact, that's where it needs to start being mainstreamed into existing resources and having that wider reach. Um, this really grant making, while it's really useful in terms of making those connections between communities and building trust um, and actually getting those tangible uh, outcomes of people being part of decision making, um, it it is still um, less sustainable. It's still hand to mouth. It, it isn't sort of mainstreaming and, and linking, for example, to the community wealth and um, building agenda and actually giving communities a real stake in, in investment decisions in their area. So mm -hmm. equally, while co-design is very much to be welcomed, we also need to see it right the way through the process so that there's delivery and implementation. And the crucial thing with PB is that ultimately, then um, local citizens have a real say in the actual decision-making processes at the end. So it's much more in, in it than engagement. It is that decision-making tool and, and putting people and communities on, on an equal foot. Yeah, Chair, I think we could ask the Executive Office about the NVNA commitment and get an update as to where that's at. Look, thank you all for your engagement today in the paper you sent and also the answers you give. Okay, thanks for that, Martina. If we could ask next for Christopher Stalford to be brought up into the spotlight and we can pass over to Christopher for his questions. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Chairman, and thank you for your uh, presentation thus far. I think from memory, uh, going back, I think 2016, I was on the communities committee, and I have a funny feeling that I actually. So a lot of the stuff that you're saying is, is quite familiar. Um, I was under the iron chairmanship of um, oh Michelle Gilder knew at the time. So um, yes, I remember uh, hearing from you. Just a few questions. In 1911, uh, the Parliament Act established the supremacy of the House of Commons over the House of Lords, and. Um, defined that the Lords would no longer have the power uh, to veto a bill and also reduce the parliamentary term from seven years to five years maximum. In that sort of spirit where one assembly, if you want to call it that, was clearly established as superior to the other, whereas prior to that they had both been on an equal footing. How does 
a citizens' assembly sit alongside an elected assembly that's elected by all of the citizens of Northern Ireland? Um, well, I could say something quick, and Rebecca might want to back me up. Um, so a citizens' assembly is fundamentally different. It's not a legislature. Um, it's, it's not an institution. It's a process. You know, and any individual citizens' assembly has a specific topic or set of topics and a duration after which it stands down, its work is complete, and it produces a report. So its role is very much to advise um, and elected representatives mm. um, uh, rather than to make decisions, you know, make alternative or separate decisions. So it's to work very much in lockstep with um, the elected assembly and isn't in any sense a challenge to that. Rather, it's I would see it as a useful tool for elected representatives to make use of and for them to kind of uh, set the set the agenda and select the topics that any citizen, given citizens' assembly would consider. Rebecca, do you want to kind of add anything further? Yeah, I, I mean, as you said, I, I would I would back you up on that and, and agree with you. And I I think you know um, parliaments get influenced by all different kinds of um, you know influencers, campaigners, lobbyists, other vested interests, and this is this is another way of um, of getting those inputs and actually very 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 rich insight into what people think about certain issues that I think elected representatives don't don't often enough get to hear. And I think when when we have engaged with politicians around specific processes, um, they often come with that view, that very understandable view that actually this is undermining this is undermining me or my position. Um, and actually what they see is that it's an opportunity to um, to, to really direct care from um, from voters, from, from people in ways that can would work the outcomes. Um, how many people would be in the average citizens assembly? How many members would it have roughly? So we would um, we would tend to advise between eighty and about a hundred and twenty, sometimes upwards to one hundred and fifty. But but it, it becomes uh, for all kinds of operational reasons harder to design for a bigger group. But about eighty to one hundred and twenty um, at a at a kind of ni wide scale, you'd be you'd probably be aiming for about a hundred. Out of a out of a country of one point eight million people. Yeah, so um, so I mean, there's, there, there were a hundred members of the Climate Assembly UK, which is representative of a much bigger population. The idea isn't to be statistically representative; it's to it's to try and um, get a hundred people in the room that that look more or less demographically like the population it, it represents. Okay, um, just in terms of past experience in in the Republic of Ireland, um, to be fair, I don't think this criticism does apply to. Um, any party represented on this committee, but would you accept maybe valid to suggest the reason why a citizens' assembly was formed in relation to issue of the Eighth Amendment is basically because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael didn't have the guts to take a position on the issue. Uh, um, I mean, citizens' assemblies can be used to, to expedite very, very difficult, thorny issues. That, that's for sure. Um, I think we've become fixated in this part of the world on um, on very divisive issues being put to citizens' assemblies for the reason that, um, and for constitutional reasons in, in the Republic, um, that those were the issues that ended up. If you look at the recent OECD report, the majority of citizens' assemblies in the EU and in OECD member countries have been on much more kind of prosaic issues of strategic planning, urban planning. Um, urban planning actually is the most frequent topic, um, healthcare reform. So sort of uh, 
less uh, compelling policy issues actually this is a really useful tool for, for finding a way forward on those and i think we have plenty we have plenty of those in northern, um, in northern ireland that haven't been um maybe progressed sufficiently so yeah and if it's if it's reflective if a citizens assembly is reflective of society <clears throat> and society in any democracy will often be gridlocked on any particular issue not just i mean the thorny issues obviously uh, I, I cited the example of uh, the Republic, where actually I do think, to be honest, I think what happened was that the two bigger parties there did lack the courage because they were afraid of losing a significant number of supporters who were pro-life. I actually think clearly, as the referendum subsequently evidenced, there was a, a comfortable majority in the Republic of Ireland who wanted the Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution gone. But I think for political party management reasons, I think the two bigger parties who both had significant numbers of pro-life supporters and members were afraid to, to grasp that particular um, nettle. But if, if a citizen's assembly is reflective of society and an elected assembly is reflective of society, why wouldn't the gridlocks that you would get sometimes in a democratically elected assembly not emerge in a citizen's assembly? And it's, it's, because they don't have to run for office, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. Maybe it's a it's a lovely question, actually. And I I think you um, I I think the fundamental difference is that the the kind of the, the um the terms of the of of the discussion in um in parliamentary processes is one of debate. Um, it's one of kind of you know of countering of having an opponent and having a, kind of a win lose um, a win lose structure. Whereas the um, the essence of a citizens assembly is deliberation. So you're you're not seeking to uh, to, to debate somebody. You're not seeking to make anyone look at, as um, as silly as possible to progress your own view. You're actually trying to find um, things on which you can agree and move forward on. So it's it's just it's very very different. And of course you you know you um, you have famous quote where you you know you can know the right thing to do but you don't know how to get elected after it citizens assembly members don't have to worry about that <laughs> you know as Paul said it's dissolved and they go on their way go back to being ordinary members of the, of the public um so there is there are conditions as i said one of the conditions is that it allows people to move out of entrenched positions if they want to and very often um we, we see that and we we, we track how attitudes change um, at the end of the Citizens Assembly compared to the beginning. And there is a shift um, towards kind of out of their out of their existing positions or into more moderate ones. People do tend to change their minds. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a space where that's possible. There aren't that many spaces left in society where it's possible to kind of publicly change your mind, but that's that's one of them. That's why it's so productive. I think to be fair, um, in relation to the, the Citizens Assembly there was in the Republic, it produced eight recommendations, I think, in relation to that was reflective of the different opinions that there were, and ultimately it fell to the Oireachtas to, um, to take those take those issues forward in terms of post-referendum, um, what would happen. But no, look, um, thank you very much. That's very interesting. Thank you for, for your presentation and your answers, folks. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Christopher. We're going to bring our last uh, question, unless anybody else indicates afterwards, but we've got Trevor Lunn. If we could bring him up to ask some questions, please, Trevor. Yeah, thanks, Chair, um, and thanks all of you for your presentation. It's been very interesting. And I, was, I think I read your papers that 60% of MLAs actually approve of citizens' assemblies, which is, I must say, is slightly surprising but very heartening. Uh, I would be one of the 60%. 
The, um, Rebecca, you mentioned the, uh, the, the or Christopher mentioned the, uh, the Citizens Assembly down south on the 8th Amendment. Uh, has, has the Republic had any other major constitutional issues where they used the apparatus of a Citizens Assembly? Or can you give us any examples from elsewhere where major constitutional matters have been discussed in that kind of forum? Yeah, the, there are really there are lots, and I'm sure I'll miss some. And Paul can step in if he remembers any. So, so um, in in the south, they've used um, they've used the citizens' assembly to look at um, at same sex marriage. Um, actually, that was a constitutional convention, so it was a slightly slightly different model. Um, they've just recently looked at um, at the the place of women in the home, um, which is which is written into the Irish Constitution, um, quite a controversial clause. They, so, the, the most recent iteration of the citizens' assembly has looked at that. Um, and and their report has just gone before the Oireachtas. Um, the uh, the Canadian province of British Columbia, to go a little bit further away, had um, had a citizens' assembly to look at changing their um, their electoral system. Um, it, and it's it's so it's 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 used. Yeah, it's been used. Paul, I'm sure I'm forgetting some really high profile one. You please do step in. Um, but but yeah, it is used on constitutional issues. Um, uh, but more well. commonly, but more commonly, it's used on on. Um, on on, on po- kind of policy issues. Yeah, the one the other one in the south was the because um, they've had three citizens assemblies, each of which have looked at multiple issues. The first was the constitutional convention, which is actually a, a hybrid model of members of the public with elected representatives together, and that was the one that resulted in the marriage equality uh, referendum in the south, which is another constitutional change. That was the very first one actually, and then the one which looked at the Eighth Amendment also looked at, I think. Whether is it seven or nine topics? So the the Eighth Amendment tends to get publicity, but there were a whole host of other topics. In fact, I attended some of the sessions along with some MLAs actually. To at the time of, of the one that looked at the manner in which referenda are held, um, so it was a bit more of a to some minds maybe a dull topic, but an important one nonetheless. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. Uh, the, the, the major constitutional issue of the day up here eventually is going to become. The, the future of the Ireland as a whole. And there's quite a body of opinion about it at the moment that's suggesting that a citizens' assembly based on the north-south basis could be a very useful input into that discussion. Not, not to make decisions about whether it's desirable or feasible or not, but to look at the pros and cons of, of, of the argument and the feasibility. Uh, I know that the Doyle Committee, I think it's the Committee on the Good Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, has recently passed an amendment to say that the Doyle would support a citizens' assembly on a north-south basis. Uh, and it may be that the same question is going to be asked of the Northern Ireland Assembly very shortly. Um, do, do you think is it feasible to have a citizens' assembly on a north-south basis with two jurisdictions involved? Is there any particular reason why it shouldn't happen? Let's put it that way. Um, I, I I think that it's um, it would be very it would be very tricky to do um, definitely very tricky to do um, and and I think having um, a citizens assembly on on any topic where um, there's kind of a partisan split in support for the citizens assembly looking at that topic um, would, would its legitimacy would kind of be in question on that basis it, um, issues of people um, of from, from unionist communities wanting to take up the invitation to be part of that, so achieving that that kind of balanced representation would also be a challenge, I think. Um, 
what what we're sort of recommending in this approach is, um, and, and I know in in the academic literature they talk about kind of a, a deliberative system, so bringing more deliberation into into politics just generally. So not just focusing on these kind of singular mechanisms in isolation, but looking at how deliberation can um, can exist at kind of all levels. And again, to 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 go back to my response to. Um, to um, uh, Mr. Stalford's questions, just that idea of kind of replacing some aspects of debate with more careful deliberation and weighing up is really helpful. And I do think that deliberation has a role to play um, in, in talking about those those constitutional questions, but possibly not at the scale of a citizens' assembly right away. So you know these can be scaled, um, these can be scaled up or scaled down. So more kind of distributed deliberative dialogues um, at the level of, um, of of towns or communities or electoral wards or whatever might be a, a more productive way to start. Um, and also, I think looking at looking at those other policy issues that do cut across communities and are of are of common concern and not divisive in the same way, I think is is maybe the way the way to go at least initially. Yes, um, I'm I'm really thinking in terms of uh, an assembly that could look at the specific issues without taking a, a view on the actual overall question. Yes, yeah. an assembly could surely look at the question of policing, about education, about the health service the vexed question of how much money would have to be spent. Uh, that, that's where I would see a useful uh, deliberation of discourse. Um, but the, um, and in terms of the mechanics of it on a north-south basis, is there any particular reason why it shouldn't be able to be organised? I mean, post-COVID and post-Zoom and all the rest of it. I mean, just to, while Rebecca's thinking, <laughs> um, you know, in... In principle, probably not, but I mean, a citizen's assembly would need to be commissioned by a, a, an institution. So what would be the body that would commission it and what it, that it would report to would be the question. And I think what we're trying to kind of steer clear of is uh, citizen's assemblies and deliberative processes tend to work better in situations where you've got an issue with a range of choices and it's not a sort of a, a binary decision. And of course, the constitutional issues aren't inherently binary, but they do tend to be perceived that way. Um, but as you suggest, you know, breaking it down into its constituent parts of different topics could be a way to, I think what we do need undoubtedly is to build up deliberation and a deliberative culture around these questions. I think the concern is just putting all of that pressure on one process, I think is more than a single citizen's assembly could take or could be reasonably expected to deliver against. You know, so I think I think there is some potential um, in, in looking at separate issues. I know that Involve have been uh, work, done work in the past around Brexit, for example, where rather than taking the issue at face value, it looked at issues around immigration, issues around trade separately, and asked people what they thought about those issues separately, and then what did that mean as an overall package? You know, So those kinds of approaches could be used, but I think... Um, putting it all on... Sorry, I think my connection is gone there again. It's probably probably useful, <laughs> but yes. So that you know, I think putting it all in into one citizens' assembly on a question which could risk being seen as binary and which could be could lack legitimacy, especially if one part of the political equation refused to support it and and it was difficult to get members. I mean, apart from anything else, it requires cross-party political support to t undertake any of these initiatives. Otherwise, they just won't be useful in helping to to resolve an impasse. Yeah, well, fair enough. Thanks, uh, Paul, and thanks, Rebecca and, and Louise. <laughs> and thanks, Jeff, for letting me go on with that. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you.
That's grand. Thanks very much for that, Trevor. Okay, um, Paul and Louise and Rebecca, that's us complete with questions. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to come to us today. Uh, certainly, it's been a great information update for members and um, certainly given some food for thought uh, as to what may happen next. But thank you very much for taking your time to join us today. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Okay, so members, maybe I suppose just to, to follow on from that and getting a sense that there was sort of general, general enough support for that, uh, maybe what we could do is just write to the executive office and just ask them for an update on their what work they have done in towards implementing the, the commitment that there was in NDNA regarding um, the, the participation and Citizens' Assembly as was listed in it and get the update. And once we receive the update, then we could sort of decide from there what would happen next. Would members be agreeable with that? Agreed, yeah. Okay, that's grand. Okay, members, um, if, if you're happy, I know we're, we're pushing on to four o'clock, but if we power on, um, the next element of the agenda is item seven, which is the presentation regarding the High Street Task Force from the Assembly Research Service. Uh, if we could bring Mr. Michael Scholes up into the uh, spotlight for us, please. Uh, on pages 199 to 253 of the meeting pack are the relevant papers. Uh, following the briefing that we had received from local stakeholders on the High Street Task Force, it was agreed to commission a piece of research from RAISE um, on national and international high street regeneration in a range of places to help inform us of what's happening out there and in preparation for our discussions next week with the various presenters and with the other committees. So, Michael, you're very welcome to the committee. Thank you. Um, I know having a look at the information, it is quite detailed, uh, and we thank you for that. Um, we will certainly, if I pass over to yourself, to give us that presentation. Um, and then what I would encourage members maybe uh, afterwards is to try and seek some clarification if required from you, but maybe just to highlight and that maybe there's no offence taken by yourself that probably the food for thought that there will be in the, pre the information that you've got for us will be utilised next week whenever we're questioning um, the head of the civil service and others uh, regarding the issues. So um, just to remind members that this isn't to question you on the high street task forces, but that you're giving us information that we can then use uh, in our deliberations next week and beyond. So, Michael, we'll pass over to yourself if you want to give us that presentation. Thank you, Thank you for coming can along. Today. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, we can indeed. That's great. Yes. Thank you very much. So, um, really, Chair, before I, I start, I'd like to place on record my thanks uh, to Matilda Becker, one of our PhD uh, interns, for her uh, assistance on the paper. Now, as you said, there, the paper is designed to help the committee scrutinise the Northern Ireland Task Force. Um, it presents evidence from six cities um, that are have been identified previously by the committee, and these are Detroit, Toronto, Greater Manchester, Lille, Gothenburg, and Berlin. Now, the first section provides some background information on the English uh, High Street Task Force. And as you probably know, 
Chair, the, the government, the UK government has introduced various policies over the last 10 years um, to help the economic outlook of the high street. Um, and these I've, I've listed at table one um, of your paper on page 205 um, of your pack. Now, one of these uh, interventions was the High Street Task Force, which was set up in July uh, 2019. Now, it's an alliance really of 13 partner organisations, and these are presented at Annex 1 of your paper on page 250 of your pack. Um, the English Task Force really offers two levels of support for local authorities. Firstly, it offers direct needs support, um, and these are list, listed at Annex 2 on page 252 of your pack. Uh, it also offers numerous online resources, um, and, and Section 1 then really concludes with a brief summary of the Northern Ireland Task Force um, up to date. Um, now, we'll move on to the comparative sections. Now, each of these sections has the same structure. Uh, firstly, we look at the prevailing social and economic conditions, then the regulatory framework for regeneration um, in those jurisdictions, and then the interventions themselves, followed by any evaluation or information on funding. And at the end of each section, I've put in blue boxes um, some sample questions that um, hopefully members may like to put to um, uh, TO officials or the Northern Ireland Task Force in the future. Hopefully these will be helpful for committee members. Um, so the first city really we looked at is Detroit in the U.S. state of Michigan. Detroit has suffered um, from the decline of its car manufacturing industry over the past few decades. And in 2013, the Detroit Future City Project was introduced by the city mayor. Um, now, this was following a two-year community engagement process, 10 neighborhoods were chosen to receive funding. The neighborhoods were selected because they all had existing anchors which are assets that either draw people to or keep people in a place. Now, a summary of one of these interventions is the Livernar and McNichols neighbourhood, uh, and that's given on page 214 of your pack. Now, that area was chosen mainly for its anchor educational and medical facilities. Various interventions at street level have included reconfiguring traffic to single lane roads, widening pavements, to 24 feet to allow outside seating for restaurants and cafes, and installing new lighting and landscaping features. As well as these infrastructural changes, the, the city invested $260,000 in forgivable loans for 21 local businesses. Business owners can borrow up to $20,000 and they don't have to pay, um, make any repayments for the first two years. So the second city we looked at is Toronto in Canada, and the paper focuses on the Emory area of Toronto and its business improvement area. The Emory BIA and the City Council improved provision of affordable housing. They adapted the heritage and industrial buildings for commercial and residential use. They supported businesses for marketing and digitization and provided free Wi-Fi on the high street to attract new customers. Now, perhaps the most interesting um, in the, is the intervention is the Digital Main, Main, Main Street project. This is a campaign devised to increase the online presence of the local businesses, and it involves support from online companies such as Google, MasterCard, and Microsoft. 
So moving on to section four then, uh, the paper looks at interventions in the Withington area, village area of Greater Manchester. Now, regeneration in Withington is grassroots driven. The Withington Village Regeneration Partnership was set up in 2017. It includes various groups like the Withington Civic Society, Love Withington Baths and We Are Withington. Uh, more information on these is given on page 224 of your pack. The Institute of Place Management, which runs the English High Street Task Force, is based in Manchester and it's involved in supporting some of the projects in Withington. This includes analysis of springboard footfall data, and uh, mon which monitors cu uh, customer behaviour, and including footfall and demographic profiling. And an example of that is shown at figure three on, on, in the paper at page 225 of your pack. Uh, then we looked at Lille in France. Lille has uh, redeveloped previously unused uh, industrial sites to attract high-value research and tech-based industries to the city. For example, the, the Euro Technologies project converted a disused textile factory into a hub for head uh, tech startups and a campus for digital learning. And it also offers a space and support to both large companies, for example, Microsoft and IBM, and smaller and emerging companies. So section six then on page 234 of your pack looks at Gothenburg in Sweden. Uh, the key intervention here is a 25-year-old uh, year project called River City Gothenburg. And the overall project costs around 86 million pounds from private, public and university sources. Uh, the project seeks to transform the River Gotha into um, a feature itself with uh, well-integrated and accessible neighbourhoods, businesses and cultural districts. Um, 25,000 new homes are, are planned and there's a strong incentive to provide affordable housing uh, by ensuring that at least a quarter of these houses is offered at 30 to 50% below the uh, market rate. So lastly, we have Berlin, and the paper looks at two key high street renewal projects in Berlin. First one is called the In the Middle of It Berlin, and the second one is Living Centres Berlin. For the In the Middle of It uh, project, community groups can apply for €30,000 in funding for their regeneration ideas. Um, for example, uh, the Southwest Berlin Network um, Community leaders and business leaders came together to implement a zero plastic and a waste-free residential and retail area. And the aim of the Living Centres project is really to make Berlin's city centres and business streets more attractive to the local population for private investment. Uh, one example of this is the Müllerstrasse project in central Berlin, um, working with local businesses, church organisations and community groups. The District Office of Berlin Central improved the streetscaping and made traffic and uh, improved traffic and access and also improved the pedestrian connectivity to the local University of Technology. Um, they also improved and expanded the local kindergarten facilities for local people and um, for people working in the, uh, in the area. Uh, nationwide, over 300 million euros was given to the Living Centres project in 2020 by the federal government. So, Chair, that's that's a, a brief summary of the paper, and hopefully I've left uh, a lot of time for, for questions. I'm happy to take any questions that members may have. Thank you.
Michael, thank you very much for that. Um, I suppose, you know, I'm going to make a comment rather than, than a question, which is, as ever, the information that we get from Ray's is, is, is delivered to us in a straightforward and methodical way, which makes reading it and, and understanding it very straightforward. Um, and also just the fact that so much of the um, information across each of the areas was quite repetitive, but that's a positive thing because it, it's highlighting how you know, urban regeneration, you know, realigning public spaces, making uh, spaces more usable and more available for people is actually what's happening in all these other places. And therefore, that there is a, a, a sense that we should actually be likewise following on from that. So there's definitely uh, food for thought in that. And the fact that you've listed nearly 40 odd questions that people could be asking uh, is very helpful as well. But I'm going to pass uh, on to members to see if there's any questions that they have. Um, John Stewart, do you, do you have any questions that you want to ask? Um, no, Colin, I actually don't. Um, what I just want to do is just um, thank, thank Michael and the team for what is a, a really fantastic document. I know you've said it already, Chair. Um, I enjoyed reading it last night. I ended up down all sorts of rabbit holes when I was following the footnotes and linking on. And um, yeah, I could have spent hours more on it. It's a passion really close to my heart. It's what got me involved in politics originally, which was town centre regeneration and the interest of developing our town and villages. And what it does show is, is that contrary to popular belief, this is not just a Carrick-Fergus issue, an East Andrew issue, a Northern Ireland issue. This is a worldwide problem affecting our urban areas, our town centres, and everyone is battling for a solution. Nobody's found the right answer, but what we need to do is look at best practice, things that are working well, figure outside the box, and find solutions collectively. I think with this is a good starting point, and I'm really looking forward to playing a role in that. So just thank you for your team, and you know, keep up the great work. Okay. Okay. So next, I'm going to ask for Christopher Stalford to be brought up, and I'm just going to ask um, Christopher. I know that whenever you're in your office, and is impact from your microphone? Can I ask that you ask your question and you're keeping up your microphone so that that feedback doesn't come through for us? That's no problem. Yep. Yep. Grand. No, thank you, and thank you for the, the presentation. Um, speaking as someone who has a my constituency office, you probably know is in Sandy Row, which is obviously an, an inner city community. And uh, as uh, I've been an elected representative for sixteen years, eleven of which were spent in Belfast Council representing inner city communities. One of the things that troubles me, particularly if you look, for example, Belfast Council now has an established target that they want fifty thousand people living in the city centre, um, I think it's within the next 10 years. Uh, on paper, that's uh, a perfectly legitimate uh, and sensible policy goal. The problem we have is that there are, are already people living there. There are long-established uh, working-class communities. They're formed like a, a donut shape, a circle around the centre of Belfast. And I think it's really, really important as we um, develop the city and try to create um, you know, a more thriving central business district. And one of the ways in which we, we can do that is by bringing more people to live in the city. Those communities need to be treated with respect. And I have to say, over the course of the last 15 years or so, a lot of the development that has taken place in those communities has not treated them with respect. 
I, I always say this, that there are developments that have been built around Sandy Row in the past and the market that physically and metaphorically look down on the communities that they've been placed beside. I'm not saying that the people that live in them do, but they're almost apart from the well-established community. So if we could talk to just what the experiences have been, particularly of residential communities in some of those areas that you've mentioned, and how they have been facilitated and treated with sort of dignity and respect in the development processes um, in some of those areas. Thank you. Yeah. Um the funny it's a very it's a very good point that, that you raise there and um, the if i could just point you to uh the uh, detroit um section um in detroit well, they had uh, obviously a a serious um problem with um the the decline of their motor um uh, automobile industry and really what happened was that they, they made a conscious decision in Detroit that they weren't going to try and fix that problem they were going to try and actually target now this is quite interesting but it, it's controversial and uh, um, may not even answer the question that you, you put me, but they were going to actually target if you like average income families and really asked them what they wanted. Um, so they used a series of um, uh, a series of, of, of data and information and a two-year um, community sort of uh, engagement process, which used looked at a lot of data sources, and and they made a conscious decision to actually try and improve access for for the people on the. Um, on the average, if you like, wage levels, and to a certain extent, ignored the people who you you perhaps described that live in, in in your constituency area, and we received a lot of flack for that. But I think the idea was behind it all that you would have, and I think this is possibly what has happened in Belfast, that you'll have a sort of a trickle down effect, a trickle down economic effect, where. Um, you know, more affluent people move to the city, there'll be more jobs, there'll be more money that flows down and, and create more jobs. Um, uh, and, but uh, recently, we've, we're hearing more and more that this trickle-down uh, economics doesn't work. Um, and I think you very eloquently put the, the problem there in your own constituency. So I, I think when you look at perhaps Manchester, the, the Withington uh, Village, um, regeneration projects were very grassroots driven uh, and they looked at things like um, the swimming baths that were that had been disuse, disused and things that really meant something to the local community and the people who were living in that area and they, they basically had the, they had the help of the um, the English High Street Task Force the um, they had the help of that in trying to uh, apply for various sources of like crowdfunding, for example. But there wasn't a pot of money that they could just use. It was down to the community themselves, which which I think is uh, is a problem in Northern Ireland because they, they, from what I've seen at the moment, the High Street and your earlier um, official said that there's no, there's no money for the High Street Task Force. There's no budget. So wh where's the money going to come from? Is it going to be from loans? Is it going to be... All of these questions need to be put to the officials. 
um, because the money does need to be found. Um, and I hope hopefully the examples that I use in the paper um, do give a broad range of, of funding. I mean, we put a section um, of funding in for each uh, each of the examples and it will show um, the various different types of how um, the forgivable loans one that I thought was an interesting one in Wales. They also have have a, a town loan um, or the uh, system where the, the local authority loans out the money to the retailers and they don't have to pay it back for a certain amount of time. Um, and there's various um, attractive interest rates that are tasked to that, rate relief, all of these other these uh, incentives that are given. So hopefully that goes some way of, of answering your question, but I think you've hit the nail on the head. The lo local people, in um, particularly in the most deprived areas, really, at the moment, they're not being listened to. Thank you. That's grand. Yeah, that's fine. Thanks. All right. Thanks very much, Christopher. Um, Pat Sheehan, if you could be brought up next for a question, we'll pass over to Pat. Yeah, thanks, uh, Chair, and, and thank you, Michael, for your uh, research. And my question is uh, a, sort of a similar theme to what Christopher asked, and it, it deals with, uh, I suppose, marginalisation or exclusion uh, and I suppose I'm acting proxy here for Martina uh, because she has been banging on for a long time about the makeup of the High Street Task Force and that Derry doesn't have a representative on it and that it's, it's very Belfast-centric. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I understand exactly where Christopher's coming from, you know, a, a, a long settled community there in Sandy Row. Uh, is effectively being pushed further outside the boundary uh, and, and marginalised to a certain extent. Um, and, and similarly with Derry, if there's no representative from, from Derry, then how does it really get a good look in at what's happening? And I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of the research you have done, would you have any idea of what best practice is in terms of makeups of task forces or the sort of dynamo that drives these uh, uh, regeneration schemes? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, um, I can certainly ha have some comments on that. I don't know if I have the, the exact answer, but um, uh, I think the problem that yourself alluded to, and I, I did Mr. Stalford, that, you know, when does... Um, Regeneration start and gentrification end. You know, there's a there, there's a bit of an issue there in terms of you know who who really is um, are these regeneration projects going to be for? Um, are they going to be for an, an expanding middle class that's going to move into the city centre, or are they going to be actually for 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 the for the more um, working class people that, that originally lived there? And, and these are questions really for um, for the, the officials and for the high street task force. A really obvious question, I think, is going to be, how do we decide which area, which town centre, is it Lisburn, is it going to be Limavati, is it, you know, how do we decide who gets the attention or the money or, um, you know, what's the criteria going to be? I mean, th there doesn't seem to be any real answers to, the, to those questions. Regional imbalance is, is one of the, the questions that, as you rightly say, I, I think... Um, 
um, Martina asked before in, in the previous um, session, I think, that I watched. Um, and that, that is going to be a real problem the, because I, I would have to agree that at the moment the, um, the, the structure of the task force does seem very Belfast-centric. I've noticed that it included um, Bel uh, some of the universities. Now, I'm not sure if that covers um, west of the province or not, but, or just the Belfast campuses. But um, one thing that, that I was, uh, I actually um, briefed the um, communities committee last week about this. And one thing, uh, one point that I raised was there seems to be no rule, no role in the task force for uh, libraries NI. And as we know, libraries are in every single town centre in, uh, across Northern Ireland. Um, they're right at the heart of the, many of the communities, rich, poor, um, and they can, they can be, I think it would be a fantastic place to act as a hub and to, to disseminate any information about renewal projects or for community groups to get together and, um, and to have a voice. Um, I'm sorry, I haven't really answered your question there. Possibly I've, I've raised more questions, but the the overall what would, what the paper i think hopefully tries to get across is it's it's the the successful regeneration projects are um are they're community based um there's a variety of different funding interventions that are going into them um and they're also long term and also they don't just help the immediate area they also help the outside area as well because um that people will need to actually live slightly outside the city center to move in so it's not just in the in the very um uh, city center as well it's the sort of slightly outside areas as well that will need help they'll need kindergarten sorry not kindergartens but crashes um as you see from berlin they invested heavily in, in uh, improving the kindergartens in central berlin so all of these, it's a multifaceted approach and there's not one single answer, but but the what I will say, and I don't want to be too critical of the department, but um, it seems to be that the the, the vision for the, for the Northern Ireland High Street Task Force seems to be one of um, an advisory position and, and um, maybe that's useful, um, but certainly without any budget. Uh, there is a staff. I noticed the statement in February said that there was going to be a staff of four um, uh, sorry, a staff held head up by the Department for the Communities, and it would be a senior, um, a senior official from that department who are going to be in charge of the secretariat. Now, what that means, I, I don't really know if that's going to they're going to run it or just be an admin um, role. Um, so there's there are so many questions, as as uh, the chair said. I think I've, I've nearly fifty questions in the paper. Yeah, I'm just uh, finally the uh, question. Don't know whether you'd be able to answer it or not, Michael. In, in terms of all the other cities that you have looked at, did any in particular jump out at you? Uh, you know that you thought was the best model or the best template that we could uh, look at and and copy for here. Well, I'd have to say, I've had to say, not really, because um, because I think it needs a bespoke, um, uh, specially dev devised um, astrology. Because it, uh, you know, um, all of all of the cities did something slightly different. Lille in France tried to tried to attract um, high tech. Um, you know, we we certainly in Northern Ireland, I think that we seem to be going that way as well. Um, maybe that's something we could do. Um, the, the the Manchester example looked at more grassroots um, things, and uh, and Toronto um, tried to give these for, for uh, forgivable loans. So 
um, there wasn't really one that I would point to that um, I think I think the task force needs to hopefully take um, some parts from each of them really and come up with a bespoke um, uh, vision if you like for, for for the Northern Ireland task force so we'll have to just We'll have to just wait and see. And another quick point that I'll make is um, one of the, the English task force was given money through the Future Cities Fund uh, for um, capital projects. And the capital projects had to do something different. They had to not just reinvent the wheel, not just do what they've done before. It had to be unique and something different. And that's grand. That's absolutely fine. But as we all know, capital projects take at least 10, 15 years and we're still in the infancy here of, of this sort of high street renewal. So we it's really is too early to evaluate any of those big projects. Okay, thanks for that, Michael. Thank you, Colin. All right, Pat, thanks very much. And thank you for your um, bravery as well for suggesting that Martina banging on about something. So yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you meant there. That, that, oh, you, that issue. You know, I don't think I used those words, did I? No, no, no. It was Pat. All <laughs> right, said, sorry, I thought you meant me where the rest of us wouldn't. Um, Michael, look, that seems to be the end of the questions. As I say, don't take that as a slight because I think that, that the, the document is very well laid out and contains the questions, contains the, the information that will certainly assist us next week. And I want to thank you for doing that and thank you for coming along today for your pre with the presentation. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Okay, uh, members, then we'll bring you all up into the spotlight then so that we can continue with the last few items on the agenda, uh, unless there's any point that anybody wants to make on that presentation. Nope. So members, then um, we'll move on to item eight, which is the forward work program. On page 255 of the pack is the forward work program. And if we look at page 259, there is the paper outlining the responsibilities and the implications in relation to the climate change bill. Obviously, there are a number of key areas of that bill that will impact upon the executive office, and they're laid out in that element of the document. Could I suggest to you that we invite the bill sponsor and the department to attend the committee after summer recess that we can question them on those elements of the bill that pertain to the department? Yeah, good idea. Great. Uh, as maybe had mentioned earlier, can we seek agreement from yourselves as well to invite the first um, deputy first minister to the committee on our last sitting on the seventh of July, uh, just to allow uh, a question and answer session and update before we go off on summer recess. Agreed. Okay, and then maybe just to remind members that the Assembly Chamber has been secured for the concurrent meeting next week on the 16th of June, uh, which is with the uh, Finance and the Economy Committees. There are limited um, spaces available in the Chamber, and really it's maybe just about finding, is there anybody that is happy to attend remotely, uh, or are there anybody that would have a preference maybe for attending? Uh, maybe if we go those that would prefer remote, uh, is there anybody that would like to attend remotely next week? If it helps, I'm not here next week, so I'm away. For so okay, John, that's we we we're down yourself. Part of your preference? Well, I would prefer to be in person, but um, Martina and uh, Emma, who have a bit of traveling to do to get here, might want to uh, come in remotely. 
Okay, right. We can we can take it as an indication at this stage rather than a hard rule. I know uh, committee guys will take a check round as well. Um, Trevor Clark, are you happy to come in person next week? I'd probably come in person for my connections crap from here. Oh, okay. No problem. Fine. Then we can do that. Christopher, you appear to be in the building. Will you be the same next week? Yes, that's fine. Yeah. Okay, George Robinson. He's away, Chair, I think. No, no, it's still there. Um, would you like to... Okay, we'll, we'll work on that one, George. Thank you. And then Trevor, um, what about yourself, Trevor Lum? Yeah, well, I, I hate remote with a passion, so I would much prefer to be there in person if it could be arranged. Yeah. Oh, well, we have the indications there, Michael. We can work offline maybe on just getting the finer details of that for next week then. Okay, members, thank you. Um, outside of that, can we note the rest of the forward work plan unless there's any other questions on that? Okay. Members, in terms of correspondence, there's six items in the meeting pack uh, and a number of items in the tabled pack. In terms of the stuff that's in the meeting pack, there is uh, correspondence which is summarising the correspondence that's been issued and received by the Committee for the Economy on business issues relating to the protocol. Now, we had written to the Committee of the Economy asking what engagement work that the Committee had undertaken so that we could avoid duplication. So are we content uh, to leave it with the Committee for Economy to engage with this matter, matter, or would you prefer that we write to the Committee to ask for future correspondence that's copied into ourselves? Um, it's generally on the, uh, the issue of the Brexit and the protocol. So would members like to receive any correspondence that goes to the Economy Committee that maybe is copied into ourselves? Would that be agreeable? Sure, I would agree with that. Better to have it, I think, than, than not have it, maybe, is, is the handiness there. There is also um, correspondence from the EU Affairs Manager on European Commission's proposal for a directive on pay transparency. That's actually in Section 913 of the table pack. Um, so can I get agreement that we maybe write to the department to ask that the dedicated mechanism element might be checked to see if this issue of transparency um, um, if we could check if that could be um, I'm kind of lost myself a little bit there I guess I think I fell off there but just so it's, it's asking um, if the department would use the dedicated mechanism to check out if it's something that falls under the scope of that mechanism would members be happy if we send a letter to the department to ask for that Content, yes. Okay. Uh, members, then, is there any other item of correspondence that anybody would like to raise? Yes, Chair. Just, yeah. just the issue in relation to the uh, agreement in principle on the fishing. Yes. Uh, you'll know that was one of the more contentious issues in the whole Brexit debacle. Uh, and it's interesting that and uh, negotiations have gone on basically under the radar and uh, and uh, and it, it appears that uh, agreement has been reached and i mean i hope the same uh, sort of attitude is taken towards any negotiations around the protocol that uh, agreement can be reached uh, if people are given a chance uh, to do it without all the sort of 
uh, raised voices in Hullabaloo that has been going on. Uh, there may be difficulties with the protocol. I have no doubt they can be ironed out. Uh, and uh, without the, the, the sort of threats and and so on that have been going on recently. So I think uh, just to summarise, I mean, let's let's follow the example of the negotiations that have gone on around the fishing. Shanae. Okay. Tempted to say that th th those negotiations took place under the sonar rather than the radar, but I, I don't know. I'm maybe not into my fishing terms there, but uh, okay, that's... that's you should be. Hey, you should be. You represent South Down. Point. You should be into your fishing terms. One point is not a fishing town. It's it's Kilkeel in our glass. One all, one all. To the city for a visit someday. <laughs> There's no other correspondence to be addressed, and that's um, us. We can move to um, uh, item ten. Any other business? Which I don't have any. If anybody else has, then we can move to the date, time, and place of the next meeting. Um, after probably about 20 weeks, I get to say something different here. The meeting will take place next week, both in Stormont and virtually. So any members that are in next week, we will see you there. Uh, for those that are remotely, we'll make sure that they're on board for the meeting next week as well. And I'll see everybody then. Thank you very much for today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Bye. This is the Northern